Sir Richard, what did you have for breakfast? I had uh, yogurt with pistachios, some coffee, and water. That was once I got to the airport, and I've had some almonds. Good man. More water. Yeah, more water. <laughs> At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now it is seen a broken time. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. Athleticgreens.com slash TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, Ducks, Hunds, and Malinois. Look that one up. Belgian Malinois. If you want to see a flash of a creature go across your screen and take out a criminal, just look for canine Belgian Malinois on YouTube. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. And every episode, as you may know, it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers, to try to seize out, seize out, I'm not sure if that was English, the habits, the morning routines, the influences, the favorite books, etc., that have made them so exceptionally good at what they do. And that ranges from the Arnold Schwarzeneggers of the world, literally, to Jon Favreau, to stand-up comedians, athletes, musicians, chess prodigies, everyone in between. And today we have a tattooed heretic, Richard Betts. He's known for wine and whiskey. Why is that? Well, Richard Betts served as the wine director at the Little Nell, very, very famous spot in Aspen from 2000 to 2008. 
But that's not so interesting compared to the next point, which is Richard passed the Court of Master Sommelier's master exam, so becoming a master sommelier, on his very first attempt. And that meant he was only the ninth person in history to do so. And I first met Richard through the investing mastermind Wunderkind himself, Chris Saka, who will no doubt be the most successful venture capitalist of all time if things keep going as we see them moving. And I also had him on the podcast. And Richard and I hit it off immediately. He can help train your senses for anything, including wine, whiskey, his current obsession of mezcal, and far beyond that. He's also done a ton of experimentation, gotten a lot of tattoos, almost been shot in Mexico, and uh, developed along the way an incredibly, incredibly uncanny a lot of adverbs in this intro, to simplify the complex. So we get along. He's very good at deconstructing and simplifying himself. And in this conversation, we talk about nearly everything imaginable, ranging from the value of quitting. Uh, I didn't expect this to be such a big part of his story, but from that to tricks of the trade, meaning related to tasting wine, the test itself, travel tips, because he travels something like 300 plus days a year, and starter wines, all sorts of things. We also, as we are doing the interview, drink a boatload of whiskey. I taste, he teaches, and I have pictures on the blog post, or in the blog post, that show you what Richard looks like, what we drank, etc. So that, that may be a good visual reference for you. So just go to fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, all spelled out, or just go to fourhourworkweek.com and click on podcast, and you will find Richard. Uh, the uh, the whiskeys were amazing. And uh, side note, by the way, maybe you didn't know this, that it's whiskey, W-H-I-S-K-E-Y, when it's from countries that have an E in their name, such as America, but it's whiskey, W-H-I-S-K-Y, without an E, when the country names don't have an E. That is the where the origin is of the given whiskey. So Scotland, Japan, that's whiskey without an E. Richard taught me that, among many, many other things. So last but not least, I must say it because I love it and I've already given it out as a gift. Uh, Richard is the author of a brand new book, The Essential Scratch and Sniff Guide to Becoming a Whiskey Know-It-All, which is sitting right in front of me with whiskey stains all over it. It distills... See what I did there? A couple lifetimes worth of study down to 24 pages. It's super short. And I check it out. At the very least, it gives you a bunch of rules of thumb, like the whiskey whiskey trick with the E versus no E, so that you can impress your friends and not look like a dumbass at the bar, which is pretty awesome because less dumbass and more smartass always good. So with that said... And uh, without further ado, some of you have given me shit online for saying, without further ado, and then talking for another two minutes, like I'm doing right now. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Richard Betts. Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. Good to be here. Yeah, man. It's been a little while since we hung out. Has been. And uh, let's start at the beginning, for those people who don't know you. Yep. Why wine? How did you get into wine? I got into wine... Um, because of my seventh grade German teacher, Mrs. Mrs. Pritchard, and she was she's a total bitch. Um, <laughs> and I didn't learn anything about German in seventh grade, but I did learn. Um, and sometimes I'm I'm slow to digest the lesson, but I definitely learned that you got to do what you love. So I walked in I walked into to class that day and um, first day of school I was like this lady's intense and I don't like this subject and and I didn't go. Mm. And it didn't matter. And that I did know at that time, that it just didn't matter. Like, if I don't go to this class, I, the other class I never went to was typing. Just not doing it. Just not doing it. 
um, I don't know those student council hall passes that let you screw off like that, you know, 20 some years ago, <laughs> but, um, it, it was, it felt great at the time, felt bad at the time, but, and I didn't understand the larger lesson, uh, but it came back to me over, over time when I went to school, I went to Occidental and, and did my undergraduate work there and just struggled. You know, it was really, what did you study undergrad? Uh, I tried a lot of things. Uh, mm-hmm. I went with the idea of doing uh, marine biology specifically. Mm-hmm. And the whole biology po- uh, department was populated by young kids that didn't really have an interest in biology. They had an interest in going to med school. And when you grade on the curve, that means that intense things happen, like your slides are broken, and it's very cutthroat yeah, and right. backstabbing. It's like, this is just anathema to everything that I believe in and wh- how I want to live. Right. Um, so bailed on that. And then I had this wild hair that I should study econ, and that was just foolish because that was also boring. <laughs> um, so they went to poli sci and ended up with a minor in poli sci, but and that was interesting. You know, it's kind of how the world turns, and that was, that was cool. But I needed to be outdoors. That was that's really my compass is being outdoors. I don't think I wore shoes until I was five, um, and and so I found my way to the geology school. You know, and it's definitely not rocks for jocks there. Um, right. That's a that's a funny thing that should be dispelled at some point. Um, but rocks for jocks meaning an easy way for the jocks to pass exactly. like a science wreck. Totally. So the lesson then from the German class was you could opt out of things that you disliked. Exactly. Totally. Mm-hmm. You know, what? I'm just not doing that. And so um, geology was great. Got me outside again. Got me out of Los Angeles, which was awesome. I mean, I love L.A. I love being there then. I like being there now. But, you know, I, I need to spend time outdoors. And if you're in the middle of Los Angeles as a student, it's kind of, you know, it, it's hard to do. Yeah. Um, so geology was the thing. And then um, I took a break from it. Blew off my senior year. I lived in Italy. Um, all my friends thought I was a nut. It was great. And, and after my own heart. I was on the five-year plan. Awesome. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> Um, came back, finished, and um, I really wanted to do environmental law. That was really a thing. So I thought, well, if I'm not a marine biologist, I want to work to conserve this stuff. You know, how do, how do we do this? Well, I thought, well, I think one approach could be to speak the language of the scientific community, take that to law school, then speak the language of the legal community, and do your job well. So um, I went and did a graduate thesis in paleofluvial morphology, so ancient river system makeup is oh. what that translates to. What was the second word? Fluvial. Fluvial. That's mm. the river part. Mm. And it wasn't. It wasn't so much about that topic at hand. It was about digging deep in the scientific method and what it means to be an investigator at that level. Um, and that was great. I did find um, through that time that the farther you go with it, the smaller the scale at which you investigate. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in a small, dark, hot room with a scanning electron microscope. And this is when I'm in, you know, during the summers, I'm living in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is beautiful. I mean, right next to the Grand Canyon. It's amazing. I didn't see any of it, you know, because you're in the lab. <laughs> and so that was, uh, that was happening simultaneously. Um, I was clerking in a small firm there. I, I clerked for, for my senator on, on Capitol Hill, Dennis DeConcini from Arizona. Um, I clerked at Skadden Arps, which is the world's largest law firm. Skadden's, yeah, yeah. Big, big, uh, big kahuna. Totally. Yeah. Um, that was when I was in L.A., and then when I was in um, grad school in Flagstaff, I was clerking for a small environmental firm, and I found it didn't matter whether you were doing environmental or you were doing bankruptcy. It was the same board, like the Monopoly board, making the same motions, you know, past Park Place every time. You just traded the hat for the shoe or whatever your piece was. You know, it's still the same game. Right. And I found I didn't like the game. 
And so I was really ripe for this moment. This is what brought back Mrs. Pritchard in seventh grade, is that at the end of a, of a very um, long day with that scan electron microscope, um, it was, I was about to be thesis defense weekend. I was a couple days in advance of this moment. Um, I walked out, and I was, I was just not feeling it. Um, thesis was great. I was ready to defend it. Uh, and I was supposed to go to law school six weeks later. So, uh, I walked out of the lab, I hopped over the fence and ran across what is Route 66 there in Flagstaff to a small, um, restaurant slash wine store. And I walked in and I didn't know anything about wine. I just know that I drank it on the daily in, in Italy and how much, you know, that meant to me. And I walked in and I bought totally based on sight. And I was like, oh, I kind of recognize that label. And I pulled off the shelf and I took it home and I popped the cork and I poured a glass and that first smell, that first smell took me back to a moment that I had lived almost four years earlier when living in Italy. And I remembered a dinner I had had specifically at the Osteria Cinghiale Bianco, which is on Borgo San Jacopo in Florence. And I remember where I sat and where my companion sat and what she ate and what she wore and what I ate and what the waitress did right and wrong that night. And all that just came rushing back from one smell. And the next day I was describing this experience to a friend, um, really good friend, best friend in life, actually, uh, Bobby Stuckey, and, uh, who was getting into food and wine himself. And I said, you know, Bobby, I don't want to go to law school and I don't want to do the science any longer. I want to do food and wine. He's like, well, you should. I was like, well, then I will. And so I walked <laughs> back to the firm. I was supposed to be in the legal library at that point on someone's billable hour, which wasn't happening. Um, so I walked back to the firm and I, and I quit. Um, I did defend my thesis because it was that week. Um, but I called law school and said, look, I'm not coming and hopped off the cliff and got into food and wine. And it, that was, that was a big moment. You know, your parents, everyone has That's expectations huge. for you. It's like, you know what? I'm just not doing that. It just did, doesn't feel good. Did anyone else in your family have that, that confidence or compunction? My dog is, is clawing the bottom of her crate just for, for no discernible reason for enjoyment. Really? Was there anyone else in your family who, had that ability to sh- to switch gears and to quit, not in such a negative connotation, but in the in the sense of changing directions. Did you did you get that from anywhere else? You know, I I has to have come from my parents, I think, but they they switched gears um, in to me a much more impressive way. They both came from very very tough places, um, you know, complete poverty very rough, particularly in my father's case, very nomadic in my mother's case and, and her large family. Um, Where did they grow up? Um, my mom all over the Eastern seaboard, but, but really, uh, settled in Syracuse and my father in Syracuse. Um, and his dad was a really rough dude, He's, yeah. you know, street brawls, nickels in his fist and you know, drugs, alcohol, all kinds of intense stuff. Um, and so they, I mean, they're the people I'm, I'm most proud of to, to come from such intense circumstances like that, be the first of your families ever to go to, to college and then make your way out West and actually make your way. I mean, that's, that's, they definitely changed relative to what came before them. So heroes in a different way. What did your, what did your parents do when you were growing up? So my mom, um, educator and she, um, ran for a long time, something called the teenage parent program, which gave kids an opportunity. If you were pregnant, you could stay in school. Um, they had a daycare facility in the school and this is everything from sixth graders through high school. Um, so 
one, you can bring your kids to school, but two, you actually are in school and you graduate and three, you learn how to take care of your kid at the same time. So she really, she kept so many kids in school, which is huge. That's huge. Yeah. Um, she eventually made her way to the university of Arizona. Um, and she did her PhD and then ended up as a researcher there at the U of A. And my dad, uh, a biomedical engineer, um, at the university hospital there his, his whole life. So I can see now we're, I'm skipping ahead in my own mind, but I can see how, the sort of biomedical engineer scientist aspect and the educator aspect tie pretty neatly into a lot of what you do now. Totally. But I'm skipping ahead. I don't yep. want to, I don't want to give away too much of the middle of the movie. So we'll go back to the <laughs> beginning. So you decide law. Thanks, but no thanks. Yep. What, food and beverage. Then what? And how old were you at the time? So just finishing law, uh, grad school in 96, I'm 25. And, um, you know, I always think that I'm somewhat late to the party, you know, like people decide I'm into food and wine when they're like 18, 17, 16. And you see those very young people into it today. And that's great. I'm, I'm always slow to make my decision. Um, but when it's made, it happens. And so we moved, um, I just gotten married, um, to my first wife, uh, at the time we moved to Missoula, Montana not known as a bastion of, of great food or wine. No offense if there are any Montanans out there. All, I've eaten very well there very frequently. But um, if you want to go learn about this stuff, it's probably not the best place to do it. But uh, my first wife had gotten a tenure-track job at the University of Montana. A what job? Tenure-track. Oh, tenure-track, yeah. yeah. job at the University of Montana. Not unlike the legal profession in exactly. some ways. Exactly. Yeah. Yep, sign up. There it is. Here's your life before you. Um, that's an intense thought. So uh, we moved there. And I, I worked in uh, all kinds of places, but the, the first place I worked and cooked was I walked into the Red Lion Motor Inn, which in 1996 was for sure the nicest restaurant in town, you know, and, and it was a motor inn. You park your car in front of your room, that kind of place. Um, so I walked in and there is a master chef, which is a real designation. Um, I think it means, it means you can do all kinds of things, including put on a brunch for like 3000 people and carve the hell out of a block of ice and turn into a swan or something. But, um, that that's a real thing. And I walked in and his name was, was Hans and Hans said, Oh, you want to learn to cook? Huh? Okay. Yeah, sure. Here, hold this. And he puts an egg pan in my hand, a little saute pan. I'm holding it. And he slaps a piece of toast in it and he says, flip it. And I flip it. He says, great. You're the breakfast cook for the whole <laughs> hotel. <laughs> whole hotel. <laughs> and so we were really working on our, our super hippie mantra at that time, um, which meant no car, nothing automated, riding bikes, which is great in the summer, you know, and that's, that's the, that's the big like bait and switch with Montana, um, is that summer's Eden and winter is the opposite. Right. Um, so October came and the sun went away and, uh, you know, then you're on your bike at 4am in the snow and the bitter cold pedaling in to open up this huge hotel and, and cook breakfast for everybody. And it was thrilling. It was, it remains one of my favorite jobs ever. Um, you know, that's a funny point in life when you don't, you don't really have the same stake in things as you do later in life. Um, so it was great. Like, yeah, I'm going to open this thing up and you have a flat top, you know, like that flat griddle you cook on that's 20 feet long Wow! and you're rocking eight waffle irons and you're cooking oven, you know, by the sheet pan in the back. And, you know, while you're doing that, you're stirring notes and getting the whole thing ready just to open up. Then you open that huge line by yourself and the orders start flooding in. And I think I'm a big believer that 
in the restaurant business, you either have the synapse or you don't. And it doesn't mean you're a good person or a bad person, but it does mean you either shouldn't be in the business or you shouldn't be in the business. And you mean like back of the house like for boom, boom, that boom, type boom, of multitasking, exactly. order, yep. sequencing, and all that, Whole timing, thing. et cetera. Yeah. It's a, it's a real thing. It's tough. Yeah. yeah. Um, and some people find it thrilling and do it really well, and some people find it thrilling and don't do it really well, and some people don't find it either. You know, um, But if, if you have that, and I imagine some of you that are listening do, you, it's thrilling, and I loved it. What, what is a way that someone who hasn't worked in that type of circumstance – I've worked in restaurants. I've worked in restaurants for many summers, but I was never I was never on the line or cooking in the back or anything like that. I was always in front of the house as a busboy or whatnot getting abused by patrons, but the, uh, you can get that too in the back of the house, but what, if someone wanted to try to predict if they would be good in that type of environment, what are characteristics or experiences or traits that's like, if you had to pick someone, if you had to recruit for the back of the house, but you couldn't test them in the back of the house. Right. I would, I would look for someone who, um, for sure can handle stress. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, because everyone around you has the possibility to just totally lose it. And if they start freaking out, are you going to freak out with them? And then the whole ship sinks. So, so stress management is huge. Um, this seems silly, but you got to be able to deal with the heat, like yeah. the physical heat. Um, yeah. later, a few years later, I had a, or a year later, I had a different cooking job and standing in front of, I was Griardin, which means you work the grill and standing between the grill and the line, I'd have the little pocket thermometer in my, my, you know, chef's coat pocket and read 130 degrees all night long. It was a real thing. (laughs) It's really, really warm in some of these places. So you got to deal with the heat. You have to deal with the stress, the pressure and keep cool. And you have to be able to, to multitask. You know I mean? If you, if you get, if you're like a a myopic thinker, it's not for you, you know, but if you can say, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And meanwhile, you have all these little timers going off in your head, you know, it probably means you don't sleep well all the time. Um, I'm that guy. I woke up three times last night, just thinking about stuff. Right. Um, and it doesn't bother me, you know, it just is. Um, so those, those would be the three things. So you're in Montana biking through October snow to open up the line. What, what did you like about that? I mean, what, what excited you about that? The pace for sure. Um, you know, what was really important to me, Tim, is that, um, it was on the job learning. And so before, before I actually got that first job, we got to Montana. I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to figure this out or am I going to take time off and then go to culinary school? And I was like, you know what? I've done a lot of school, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm kind of done with that. A lot of prep, a ton of prep. Let's do something. And so I went and talked to a chef and I said, Hey man, this is what I'm thinking about. Like, I'm either going to like ask you for a job or, um, this was after I was already working at the Red Line Inn. Uh, I'm either going to ask you for a job or I'm thinking about culinary school. And he's like, well, here's the deal. You can come here today and you can ask me for a job. And I'll say, yeah, great. Here are the potatoes. Get peeling. Or you can go to culinary school, spend two more years of your life preparing, spending you know, 30, 40 grand a year in bills to be there. Then you can come to me and ask me for a job. And I'll say, yeah, sure. Here's a, here's a you know, big pot of potatoes. Get peeling. You know? <laughs> same thing. Up to you. Yeah, same, same. <laughs> like, okay, I, I'm, I'm pretty good at math. <laughs> I got this. Where are the potatoes? Let's do it. Yeah, so it's that got simple. It. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And when, when then did the 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 nectar of the gods when did the wine enter the picture yeah so i was um while in the kitchen uh i was always reading about wine i i I knew that i wanted to do both cook and work as a sommelier Um, i thought working in the back of the house made the most sense to start 
Um, I do like that self-reliance of really learning how to feed yourself and feed others and, you know, make your table warm and interesting. That matters to me. Um, so I started there, but all the while read, 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 taste, taste, taste. And, um, I had an early mentor who said, beg, borrow, steal, but taste, taste, taste. And that's, that's the everything. If you don't have a context, and we'll talk more about that later, but if you don't have a context, you don't, you don't have any framework within which to hold anything together, even to accumulate knowledge. You got to have a context. Context meaning, uh, so, like the, like the, having the letters of the alphabet to spell words, having just like that. descriptors that you can only acquire through developing a database of exactly that different flavors. Exactly that. Yeah. I mean, it was actually no different than geology. You only know what sandstone is because it relates to mudstone and it's more coarse grain. And you know that mudstone is only mudstone because it's more coarse grain than siltstone. Yeah. So on and so forth. Not to geek mm-hmm. out on, but yeah, it's just how things relate to each other. Um, so I was taste, taste, tasting. We left Montana about 11 months later, almost to the day. Um, so we, we moved there, we bought a house, an old house, remodeled it. The sun went away, as I said, and, uh, I'm a solar powered kid growing up in the Southwest. Um, so that house was sold before the sun came out in May and we moved to Tucson where, um, I worked for the second chef I, I cooked for and really loved Alan Zeman, who's, if you didn't use a rubber spatula to get the gloss, you know, the, the intense beef protein that you worked on two days to reduce down from beef bones, if you didn't use a rubber spatula to get that out of the pan, he would dock your paycheck and make you make soap. Like it, was, <laughs> it was a real learning experience. You made everything. Nothing came in a box. Um, so while I worked for him, that's where I had this Greer Dam position where you're on the grill and it was 130 degrees all night. It was also that where the waiters had to walk by and they knew that I was really into wine. So then they started asking questions like, oh, I know Richard, you, you know, the wine list and like, what should I pair with this? What should I pair with that? So I became the sort of de facto volunteer sommelier from the kitchen. And had you been, had you been acquiring uh, tastes yes. up to that point? Yep. I spending, I mean, still had basically no money. You're earning minimum wage. Um, and I spent every dime I could on every bottle of wine I could find. Yeah. And so you bought, uh, how did you choose bottles to taste? Things I hadn't had before and, and areas I wanted to explore. So, um, you know, I don't drink much Chilean wine today, but at that point I was like, okay, this people are talking about this. So what is this about? So then it was a deep dive into to Chile. Like how do these, what are these things about? How do they relate to each other? Is this one just an outlier or does it, how does it fit in the context of the whole Really, very methodical about that. So you thought you then categorized mostly geographically yes. in the beginning. Cool. Yep. Yeah. Well, that makes, I mean, it gives you, it gives you at least a plan for starting, right? Totally. In so much as you can like compartmentalize in an orderly way. So you're not just helter skelter trying capriciously this wine after the next. Exactly. Exactly. And ultimately wine, the intellectual value of wine come from this idea of terroir and terroir it's a French word for this, this notion that everything that makes up the wine makes up the place that goes into the wine is this idea of terroir. So you should pick up a glass and it should reflect, reflect a place just like that ordinary bottle the of soil, wine. the climate, the, yeah, the pig farm pressure. down the road, right. everything, everything goes in there. And so, I mean, that's what got me into it in the first place, you know, because I picked up that bottle of wine. I didn't know anything about it, but that sensory memory got me to blow off law school. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so I kept on that path, like, okay, well, what is it about this place that makes, you know, that's a common thread amongst these wines, Mm -hmm. be it Merlot or Cabernet or whatever it may be. And, and when you can take that trip in a glass of wine, that that's the intellectual value. That's the part that matters and how I convince myself I'm getting smarter when I'm drinking. And so your, so your wait staff start asking you questions. Yes. And you're on the line. I'm on the line. 
cooking like mm-hmm. do this do that and you know it was like a free swing mm-hmm. because i didn't have to face the guest <laughs> yeah, yeah it didn't have any consequences <laughs> totally <laughs> practice without consequences so what what might a question be that uh, w- like a waiter would ask what what goes with this entree yeah or hey you know you're special tonight like how where's the acid at like is it going to work with a sauvignon blanc or is it lower acid and i should use chardonnay or hey i saw you put sorel with grapes and you know how is that going to work with this you know those sorts of things cool yeah yeah. Very cool. Yeah, it's super cool. And then what then? Then um this was in Tucson. And you're like, well, why would you go from Montana to Tucson, another place that's not necessarily known as a as a culinarily hot uh important hotbed? Um I went to Tucson after going to Portland and San Francisco both, and this is in ninety seven, ninety seven, ninety eight. And um I believe in myself and really believe um that it, you know, in, in my ability to make a decision, um, to do something I love. And then when I'm doing it, then I'm going to put everything I have into it. And am I the best at it? I have no idea, but I know I'll try harder than most. Um, so I went to Portland and it's like, man, there's so many kids getting into to the food scene that I'm just gonna have to get in line with these kids. And then I went to San Francisco, same story, like just super expensive to be here. Um, although less, less than now, um, but also just huge lines of kids competing for positions. And then there were two, these two chefs that, um, I wanted to work for in Tucson. They were actually great, um, well-regarded on a national level and nobody wanted to move there to work with them. So I was like, I can get immediate access, supercharge my learning and my path. And I did. So I went to that second chef and I said, Hey man, I want to, Giannis, I want to work, work with you. Um, this is why I'm in Arizona. And he said, great, what have you been doing? I told him how about my work with uh, Al Zeman, the other chef. And he's like, okay, cool. Well, why don't you audition? And so you spend a week auditioning in the kitchen and doing all this different stuff. At the end of the week, we sit down in his office, and he's like, okay, so I understand you've also been um, spending time learning about wine. He's like, yeah, yeah, doing this and passed my first Court of Master Sommeliers exam. And Your first one? Court of Master Sommeliers. Court of Masters. Court of ma- exactly, yeah. I it's like a big, it. big mouthful. I like that. Um, which is a certifying body for sommeliers and it's their four exams in the, in the process. And I taken the first one while cooking at that first restaurant in Arizona. Mm-hmm. So just so we can, just so we can lay out that for people, what are the four tests? There's an introductory lecture and exam and that's not a very hard test. Um, but you have to know a little something. Um, if you're a quick learner, you can pick it all up in the lecture. Then there's the certified. Oh, so they give you a lecture and then they test you on what's in the lecture. Yeah. Got yeah. It. Ideally you've read something before you get there or, you know, you have more than a passing interest. Um, but it's a, it's a, that's a course slash exam. That's very much meant to inspire. Like, Hey, here's the cool world of wine. And if you're into it, you're going to read about it, check it out, build yourself a plan to acquire the knowledge and then come back and see us for more exams as you go. So, so that's the first one. The second uh, level is the certified exam because there's a new the organization is called the court of masters the court of master sommeliers. Okay. Court of masters. Sommeliers. Yeah. Sorry. Um, different than the master of wine. Those are, there are two, um, uh, organizations yeah, or certifying com- bodies. Yeah. Two it's like certifying Patty bodies. and Nowy for That's diving. Exactly. It got That's it. Exactly. It. Which are you? I am Patty. I'm the other. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> this podcast is over now. <laughs> Done. Um, so, Anyways, I'd taken the, oh, oh yeah, right. So certified exam is the second step. And that was necessary because people were like, oh, I'm a sommelier. I passed the first exam. And uh, just from the court's perspective, and I'm, I'm not intimately involved with it, um, on a day-to-day basis, but it, people are going to use this as a, 
this is the standard and I am now this, then we felt like we actually ought to make it a real standard. So we inserted the, the certified exam where you have to be proficient in certain elements of wine service and, you know, champagne service, old decanting wine service, all these sorts of things. Um, so that's level two. Level three is the advanced exam, which is indeed really, really hard. And it's three days of examination. There's a blind tasting exam where you blind taste six wines. I don't mean blindfold. You just walk into a room and there are six glasses with wine in them and you have no idea what they are until you sit down and get after it. Um, so six wines in 25 minutes, you know, what are they? How specific do they expect you to get? I, you know, if it's, um, Ridge Litton Springs Zinfandel from 2010, you should come up with, Hey, this is Zinfandel, California, North coast, 2010. It should be, Close. you don't have to say Ridge, but yeah, you gotta get, yeah, you you're gotta not that get far there. off. Exactly. Okay. Um, that's one part of the exam. The second part is a theory examination. Anything um, that you eat, drink, or smoke could be on that exam. Um, and that, a, that's a written theory? paper. Oh, it's a written paper. Yeah, well, pardon me, multiple choice or okay, in, yeah. some, in some what short would a, essay. What would a hypothetical question on oh, that God, exam there's, look there's like? so many um, that we all are sworn that we'll never Oh, we'll I got never it. But eat, drink, about. or smoke, I, not, a, not a precise question. I'm just wondering, like, could it be something about pipes or cigarettes or smoking or yeah uh, cigars predominantly cigars. and that's actually it's super de-emphasized now and i'm not even sure that there are test questions that deal with it any no. longer but at that time you need to know that cigar service is actually done from the left side whereas everything else you've done in that test to that point wine service for example is done from the right side and you know it's things like that and ring gauges but and which all is which right is right is wine service left is cigar oh, service. Left is cigar service. yeah and then memorizing ring gauges of cigar sizes and like things that are for me completely worthless you know right. just like the periodic table i learned it for a moment and i forgot it the next day to make room for something different right it's the same thing about the, you know with cigar ring size and that's the advanced well that's part two of the advanced that's part, part two part right. three of the advanced is actually service mm-hmm. so you walk into a room filled with um master sommeliers ostensibly it's a restaurant situation and you go from table to table and perform different tasks that you're asked to to do um and they're hard um <laughs> and it's a real thing yeah and it's amazing actually but um and then the fourth and final level is exactly that again, but the volume's cranked all the way up. And the uh, the theory portion is not written, it's oral. So, Got it. And so that's that the is, Master Sommelier. That's program. the Master Sommelier test. Exactly. There are just about 200 of us in the world today. And you were the ninth person to pass it on your first attempt? I was. It's that, you know, I just got done bagging on myopia when it comes to working in the kitchen, but I, I definitely had myopia when it uh, came to studying for that test. Well, we'll we'll come back to that. Okay, so the so you you're talking to the chef you wanted to work for all yep. along. Yep. And he's like, "So you've been getting into this wine stuff." Yep. And you give him the replay yes. of having already passed the first yep. level of examination. Yep. And then what? And he says, "Okay, um, you cook well. So do you want to be the sommelier or do you want to cook?" <laughs> I was like. You've never had a sommelier. He's like, exactly right. We're going to move the restaurant to the foothills and it's be a bigger space. We're going to have a 10,000 bottle cellar and someone's got to fill it and sell it. You want to do that? And I was like, I absolutely want to do that. <laughs> it was an incredible first what job. What a godsend. Yeah, it was amazing. It was really amazing. Um, and you learn so much when you build your own list and you're responsible for budgets and you work for a chef owner who are, I mean, chef owners are notoriously maniacal. Um, <laughs> and friends with a lot of imagine, them. And, yeah. and it's true, they are. <laughs> um, so that was an amazing experience. I'd walk in with my order sheet every week, which is, you know, he had this standardized order sheet. This is what I want to order. This is who it's from. This is how much it costs. This is how many bottles, blah, blah. 
And it would be so well reasoned. I would have thought out everything and everything would have been researched from a point of view, like how good is the wine? How well is it going to age? What if it doesn't sell? What's its trajectory? Does it pair with the food? I guess asking for these sorts of things. I was totally armed to the hilt and I'd go in there and I hand it to him. He'd slide it across the desk to him and he'd sit there and put on his reading glasses and look down and pull out a pen and just start crossing things out <laughs> without even asking questions. <laughs> it was brutal. It was just brutal. Was it yeah. mostly pricing based? The, those that got crossed out? I it- think it was, I think I approached that with the wrong philosophy. Like I went with, this is exactly what we need. And he probably thought I was coming with more knowing I would get cut down to less, uh, which is what I ended up doing over uh, time. So I you learned the okay, lesson. So you learned to negotiate with the chef owner by exactly. bringing in a couple of gimmies that you're happy to let go. Totally. Yeah. The real <laughs> obvious ones, expensive neon lights on them. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And just watch them cross and those when, out. when you said if they don't sell, does that mean just looking at return policies and things like that or how you would resell them, how they would age, how they would age, how they would age. Yeah. There's really no return policy, uh, you know, in any real way. So, and it's funny, you know, I'll go look at lists now and you'll be like, wow, there's a whole bunch of, you know, 2004 California Sauvignon Blanc. Well, yeah, that's probably most of those are no good any longer because it's not something that from this particular place is known to age well. And someone was enthusiastic for it. They bought a bunch, but in reality, that restaurant only needed two. Right. Or buy one, sell it out, yeah. then buy the next like one. Buying sell it 20 out. avocados at a time. It's like- that's exactly it. That's exactly <laughs> it. You know, but, um, if it's something that's, that's meant to age or will improve and actually appreciate, then it's, then it makes some sense to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're building this list. You're getting wise to, uh, the sort of horse trading that you do with your boss. Yep. Uh, what do you, what are the, what other things do you learn? In that, in that first experience. One of, one of my most humiliating, um, experiences as a sommelier, uh, I mean, I remember the first time, I mean, even the table, you know, table 110, walk down the stairs, first one on the left, and someone ordered a bottle of, um, Romane Conti Echezo. Sorry, can you say that again? Romane Conti Echezo, which today is fantastically expensive. In 1999, or it could have been fall of 898. That was all of like $448 on the wine list. And I was trembling. Mm-hmm. I remember going to the table, my hands were trembling and shaking and, you know, super nervous. And, and, uh, you know, since then I've served bottles at 50 grand or a hundred grand and uh, 50 grand or a hundred grand and that all goes away. <laughs> but, um, but it was right. It was not shortly after I sold that very, that I'd be nervous of an a $450 yeah. <laughs> bottle of wine. Yeah. So that's not where the embarrassment came, but that was the first one. And then it was like a week later, you know, I was on a roll and we were selling these things at, you know, at a real clip, really expensive things. And, and it was an 85 Behringer, um, special reserve Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa. Um, on the table with an 85 Mouton Rothschild, which is a first growth Bordeaux from France, one of the big deal, five big deal chateau in Bordeaux, recognized as one of the great wines of the world. And this guy had a table of six. He ordered both bottles at once. He wanted them served side by side. And they were just going to compare and enjoy these things. And so I decant them both and serve them both as he wishes. And then, I don't know, 30 minutes later, I go back to refill. And of course I pour the Mouton on top of the Behringer (laughs) and I'm going, Oh boy, this is going to be horrible. And he just smiles and laughs and he looks at me and probably knows I have no possibility of paying for this (laughs) whatsoever. And he couldn't have been more gracious about it. And, uh, I thought I was going to die at that moment. It was for sure. Because I mean, you combine, how much were both of those combined? 
Uh, more than a thousand bucks. Yeah, that's yeah, a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, and ninety nine and young sommelier. It's like yeah, it's, <laughs> oh, I spent one hundred and sixty nine dollars on my suit. Yeah, yeah, there's my rent for the next <laughs> the four months. Thing. Exactly yeah. the whole thing, the whole thing. Um, and he couldn't have been more gracious, which was actually the real lesson. Apart from like paying attention, it was really about you know like what does it mean to be graceful and thoughtful and and so on and so forth. So that was that was an amazing moment. I worked at that restaurant um, until two thousand. And remember the guy who sold me that bottle of wine that changed my life in Flagstaff in grad school? Yeah. Yeah, about 30 minutes ago. But wait, you're talking about the bottle that was across Route 66. Exactly, that mm-hmm. one. In the meantime, he had gone to Aspen and taken the job at the Little Nell, for sure the world's, one of the world's best places to drink wine. What was the name again? The Inn at the Little Nell. Or just the, the Inn at the Little Nell. Or even just the Nell, as it's commonly referred N-E-L-L. to. N-E-L-L. N-E-L-L, in Aspen, Colorado, right at the base of the mountain, it's ski and ski out. It's an amazing spot. Sounds incredible. It's special. Um, so he had been the sommelier there, and um, he was leaving to go become the sommelier at the French Laundry. And said, hey, I'm leaving. You should apply for my job. I was like, yeah, of course I'm going to apply for a job. Great. And, you know, huge shoes to fill. I had no idea what it meant to be an Aspen. And, I mean, the, the caliber of wine drinker at that time is like it's as big as it can be. It, it doesn't get any bigger. It's, it's an amazing place. You mean in terms of the clientele, like in terms of the clientele, exactly like way over my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but I apply for the job and I'm flown to Aspen and we do the whole dance there and I fly and meet the GM. He's in Los Angeles for a day. We meet there and then the food and beverage director comes to Tucson and you know, you saved your best suit all week for when she comes in and, and, uh, and it was great. And I got the job. I, they probably had no business giving it to me at that time. But I got the job as a sommelier slash wine buyer at the Little Nell where I had no budget and had a ton of storage and everybody drinks everything. And yeah, we sold a lot of really great. You 15, said you had no budget. No budget. Buy what you want. And it would Oh, sell. I see. Okay. Unlimited budget. Unlimited budget. There was no one crossing things out across the desk from you. Yeah. <laughs> you just had to count it once a month. Yeah. Uh, which is also a reason not to go crazy, but, um, it was outrageous and it, very quickly, I mean, I very quickly, I realized how big the shoes were I had to fill, uh, which is good. I very much respond to pressure. Um, you know, it's like, if you want to get fit, I sign up for an event. I will run. I don't want to suck. What were the pressures? Like what, what were some concrete realizations that you had? Almost all the guests knew more, knew more than I did. And that was intense. That's a lot. That's huge. (laughs) And so what that means, like sleepless nights, read, 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 taste, 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 taste. Good practice for the master some test. Exactly. And part of the tasting is I had healthy education. That's the only place I did have a budget, quote unquote, it was an education budget. Open whatever you want. And you have, you know, a certain number. Oh, for tasting. Yeah. So you can learn really quickly. That's cool. Yeah. That came back to that. What is the right way to taste when you're given an opportunity like that? Yeah. I mean, is there like palate fatigue? Do you have to do, is it just like kind of physical training where it's like you, you can overdo it? You can definitely overdo it. Um, I don't really, I think everybody can overdo it no matter how much you practice at it. Um, there are some, some obvious things like, you know, don't eat jalapenos before you're going to go taste wine. Don't, don't mess up your receptors in any strange way. Similarly, walnuts or artichokes, you know, all those things, walnuts and artichokes contain tannins, mm. which dry out your palate and make, make it feel strange. That's very <laughs> funny considering that what I just had before we started talking. I know we're going to have a few things to drink in a bit was, uh, iced artichoke tea. Yep. <laughs> oh, Ferris. Yep. <laughs> Here we go. Definitely <laughs> so. not a good way to start your wine tasting. Um, so there are a few rules like that, but for the most part, it's the, the thing that you really have to have is a method. And 
and I spoke earlier about a context. That's half of the program. The other half of the program to do this well is you have to have a method. And by that, I mean, you do the exact same thing every single time. It's an experiment. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan, um, of this, I have a friend that articulated this, um, he's in the, he's a winemaker in California and there's a, there's all kinds of fun experimentation, but if you don't control the variables, you know, what do you actually learn? And so Terry waxes on about the importance of data, not dogma. And I, I love that saying. And so when you have this method, it's really about collecting the data in the same way, the every, every single time. And it, and it's objective. It's not subjective. It doesn't start with, do I like this wine or don't I? That happens when you decide what you're going to put on your table. But when you're trying to learn about wine, you, it's not about you. It's about doing the same thing every single time and collecting the same observations. And you're taking this down in a notebook or something exactly. like that. What yeah. do you, um, so to someone who's listening is like, you know, I'd like to give that a shot. Yeah. How would they go about it potentially? So, well, shameless plug is start with buying the scratch and sniff wine book. Yeah. It's um, great. And I've, 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 uh, I've read it. I've mentioned it. I've given it as gift to people. Yep. Within that, it, it's really a subset of the method that I use to get through the master sommelier exam. And that's looking at three main areas of wine and that's fruit, earth, and wood. And essentially those three um, categories populate almost everything that you're going to smell and therefore taste in wine. So make the same observations every single time. What are the fruit elements I smell? What are the elements that could be imparted by wood if the wine was Asian wood that I smell? What are the earthy elements I smell? And that's, that's the place to start, right? You do it with what you, what you smell and then with what you taste. Um, beyond that, you have to make observations on what you see. Let's, you know, you talk about color, you talk about visual clues for alcohol levels and all these things lead you to a Those place. Those are visual cues for alcohol levels, like legs, legs, exactly. Legs, tears, whatever you want to call so it. So how does, how does it, how does it correspond? So the slower the legs fall, the higher the alcohol level. Got it. Assuming there's no sugar. Those there. are the, dr- I mean, I'm going to mass be blasphemous here, but they're sacrilegious. It's the, it's the drips. Like if you swirl the wine. Exactly. It's the drips down the side of the glass. Exactly. Yep. From the high point of the liquid, what drips back down to the glass, those are the, the legs or the tears. And so it seemed counterintuitive to me when I first learned this, like, well, alcohol is thinner than water or, or the fruit juice. So why, if you have more alcohol, why would it run more slowly? But there's actually this, capillary action that that pushes it back up the side of the glass so it's and plus it's always evaporating and condensing on the size of the glass so the more alcohol there is the slower those tears fall hmm. right um and the reason you want to know that is you know, if you're going to be you know geeked out wine tasters it talks about a winemaking style it talks about an origin right so in germany you'll have thick tears by virtue of the sugar, but not by virtue of the ripeness. It's a cold place, right? Or even, you know, go through the Loire Valley in France and Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Franc and all these very beautiful varietals, but they don't, they don't have much alcohol, which is as it should be because it's not a warm place. And you come to California, you know, particularly this year where it's a really a warm place, you're going to develop riper fruit, which is, you know, riper fruit means more sugar which means more food for the yeasts and more potential alcohol. And once the yeasts eat it and create the alcohol there, there it is. Right. So is that, would that be, for instance, why, and I'm just kind of making this up on the spot, but why you find like a lot of, um, Zinfandels and Malbecs have a high alcohol content. Exactly. These new world wines. Yep. What would, if people wanted to try now, when you're taking this down, let's get, um, sort of a prescriptive on the tasting. Okay. How much, how much wine do you, do you drink it? 
I know a lot of people spit when you go to like the wineries. Do you drink yep. it? And how do you taste? Like, what's the, you, you have a bottle of wine. Pour yourself what? a glass. Yeah. Pour yourself a glass. The first thing you do is you, you turn it over sideways and you don't want to spill it out away from you. So tip the glass away from you and look down through the wine against a white background. And that color tells you a lot. So we don't smell color and we don't taste color. Um, it's very important to know that. But color is an, in, is an indication of the varietal and potentially also the climate. So Pinot Noir should and be... The, the varietal meaning... I mean, the, the type of grape. The type of grape. Exactly. Whether it's Cabernet Sauvignon, yep. Sauvignon Blanc, whatever. Exactly. Yep. So Cabernet Sauvignon is a thin, or pardon me, a thick, dark-skinned varietal. So it's going to make a dark-skinned red wine. In fact, if you bite any grape that you want to make red wine from in half, it's white in the middle. So all the color that in a red wine comes from the skins. So be it as Cabernet is, is thick and dark, you're going to have the resultant thick and dark, or pardon me, dark colored red wine. Whereas Pinot Noir is thinner and lighter in color, and so you're going to have a lighter color wine. Doesn't have any less flavor, isn't worth less of you know your attention or interest. It's just different. Mm -hmm. So the first thing you want to do is look at that color. And it should give you, if you don't know what the wine is, it'll give you a visual clue. Like if it's light red, well, don't don't think about Cabernet, right? Start crossing that off your list. It's about deduction. Mm -hmm. um, but if you know it's Cabernet and it's light red, well, then you might think something's wrong, right? Because mm -hmm. that's not a typical color for it. So the first thing you do is you look at it um, and you look for color and you look for sediment. You know, is, it, is there anything solid in there? You look for gas. Is it bubbling? If it's red and it's bubbling, there's kind of, you know, maybe two or three possibilities on the planet of what it could be, um, including things like sparkling Shiraz, which is totally gross and I don't drink. Um, <laughs> But those visual uh, cues tell you a lot. And then if it starts to brown, if you if we assume our glass of wine is tipped away from us and we look out to the far northern edge, if it starts to brown, it tells you that potentially is made in an oxidative style. So the wine saw some oxygen while it was being made, or it's older. And that's probably, you know, more common. Um, and let me ask you this. So what happens to an avocado if you cut it and leave it on the counter? It oxidizes. Yeah. It's brown. It turns brown. Same thing with old bananas or whatever it is. And so the same thing happens with wine. It's just grapes, right? And so grape juice goes through the same process. It starts to turn brown. So if you see that sort of brickish browning at the edge of the glass, you can start to surmise like, oh, okay, so it's showing signs of oxidation. Therefore, it's older, mm -hmm. right? And then you do the exercise. You look at, at the legs or the tears and... um you can under, you start to discern like what's the alcohol level. And so that brings us back to the context. We'll take a, a quick tangent on that. If you don't, I can look at that and say, okay, those are medium, medium plus viscosity based on how those tears fall. Well, you only know what medium plus viscosity is if you've had all the wines of the world. So that's the context, right? right. So you got to have a method, got to have a context. You have to have experienced the extremes. Exactly. And the spectrum. Right. So for everyone that wants to do this, this is your homework. It means you just have to taste a lot of wine. It's great. And do you, do you, uh, now I've heard for instance that, and I want to be corrected if this is not correct, but that you should sort of take the first swish of wine and just rinse your mouth with it because that's not the, that's not the sip that you want to try to evaluate. Is that necessary? Uh, uh incorrect? Well, it depends. If you just brush your teeth, you know, yeah. you should drink a whole glass. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, it's definitely first palate impression is, is not necessarily the right one, you know, yeah. so spend some time with it. Um, the, before you do that though, you definitely want to smell it. 
Mm-hmm. The things we really taste are sweet, sour, salt, bitter, and if we're fortunate, this idea of umami, this savory Japanese. Just had an umami burger last night. I like it. Very delicious. Nice. <laughs> so um, everything else we think we taste, we're actually smelling, and mm-hmm. so it makes sense to smell the wine. So when I smell the wine, I always think about this acronym FEW, which stands for Fruit, Earth, and Wood. And so you want to smell for those things and force yourself, you know, require diligence to answer all three of those questions. Don't just blow by it. So you might pick up a, a wine and it's just like, oh my God, strawberries, raspberries, cherries. Great. All right, cool. Let's taste it. Well, what about the earth and the wood? Because those are two huge pieces that inform the wine, right? They give it that intellectual value and make it complete and make you smart. So um, always come up with at least three fruits, whatever they are, and use your own use your own language. There is no wine speak. That's a So big I guess thing. to... To do that, you probably also have to get into the habit of tasting. I mean, you should taste things Everything. that have fruit, earth, and wood characteristics. Totally. Yep. So, I mean, we can talk about talk about all kinds of things we can juxtapose to supercharge that process. Um, but you definitely got to do it. What do you mean by juxtapose? So, if you want to understand, you know, what is earth? Okay. Well, let's buy you know Napa Valley Cabernet and compare it to Cabernet from Bordeaux. Right? Well, they're it. both the same grape, but the place really makes a huge difference. They're likely made in very similar ways. They're aged in the same oak, but it's that soil that gives the Bordeaux the earthy thing that, that'll isolate that for you, right? Hmm. That's pretty cool. So if people wanted to, say, get a, a handful of reds and a handful of whites, all of which were very different, yep. just to start developing this, what would, uh, what would a few choices be? So let's think about three whites by a German Riesling, right? Mm-hmm. There will be no oak, so that's an example of an oak-free wine. It will likely have a little residual sugar, depending on what kind you buy, um, which is really interesting because you say, oh, I don't like sweet wine. Well, that's this isn't about you right now. This is about your learning, right? Not about right. your palate. So um, what you will learn there is that it's about balance. And so the sugar will be balanced by acidity. It's all about balance in any wine. Um, so... You'll also have earth. So in the German wine, you'll have something earthy. You'll have a great example of balance with residual sugar, and you won't have any oak um, or woody characteristics. And compare that to California Chardonnay, which won't very likely have any earth. Um, it won't have the same level of sweetness. It will have oak. So you can start to say, oh, yeah, there's that caramel. There's that vanilla. There's that butterscotch. That's the oak, right? So then you can, like, put your finger right on that. And then compare it to something like... Um, you know, maybe French Sauvignon Blanc or, or even Bordeaux Blanc. So, which is Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon together in a blend, but it speaks to the place Bordeaux. And so you will have oak like the, um, like the California Chardonnay, but you will have earth like the German Riesling. And so you, you have little bits of each one. And when you can triangulate, that's when you start to get really smart. Like, okay, that's the wood. Okay. Right. That's what earth smells like, right? When you're removing one element at a time. Exactly. Or examining one element at a time. What about for, uh, reds? Red. I would, you know, what'd be pretty interesting to do would be, um, well, I'm a big fan of same, as we just chatted about, same varietal from different continent. That can be pretty interesting. If we want to do different varietals, um, you know, do something like Dolcetto from Piedmonte in Italy. There's lots of I'm great so Dolcetto. so bad at remembering Italian wine yep. names. Yep. So Dolcetto is the, the actual the name of the grape. Um, and unlike most of the wines in Italy, this is actually named for the grape and not the place. Not the region. Exactly. So, but Dolcetto is most frequently, so it's red wine, but it's most frequently made in stainless steel, um, or with the absence of new oak. So you'll taste grape and you'll taste place earth 
mm-hmm. but you won't taste any influence of wood. And then why don't we, you can even go right next door and, uh, and drink Barbaresco or Barolo. So same region, different grape. So you can identify with what that grape is about almost. I mean, 99% of the, the good cases definitely aged in oak. And so you can feel what oak does there. And you'll probably find a tie-in in terms of the earth, right? So mm-hmm. as long as they have like one tether to each other, mm-hmm. then, then it makes it really useful to see like, okay, well, what's different? Right. And then, you know, grab a Zinfandel from, from Napa Valley. And there you'll see like, okay, the alcohol is really different. And that, what does that feel like? And oak will be different because it'll be new oak and maybe it'll be American oak, which mm-hmm. will taste like dill. You know, um, huh. so, so all these little things so. where you just start to triangulate, but you gotta, you gotta keep notes and keep yeah. it organized in some way. I actually I, don't keep notes physically any longer. I just keep it in my head. But you did keep physical notes for a long time. Oh my God. Stacks and stacks of notebooks. If they fell over. They would hurt you. They're, they're <laughs> stacked that tall. Yeah. What is, uh, what is one of your favorite Zinfandels? Just out of curiosity, because I, I tend to like Zinfandels. Myself. Yeah. I have, I have, well, lots of favorites. Um, I love the wines of Turley. Um, Say in? Turley. Turley. Yeah. T-U-R-L-E-Y. Um, they're based in Napa. They make Zinfandel from, from all over. Um, and Christina Turley, uh, who's Larry's, Larry Turley, who founded it. It's his daughter. She's working with Tegan Pasalacqua to make some of the really, really special Zinfandels, uh, from California. And then Ridge is a classic. Paul Draper has been making wine at Ridge for north of 40 years. Um, and it's, it's as blue chip as Zinfandel can get. Cool. Yeah. What, what are some underrated uh, wines and uh, be, I'd love to get as specific as possible just for people who are looking to try some wines that perhaps they wouldn't be exposed to that haven't been uh, sort of over lauded. Yep. What, uh, what are some that you could bring up? So Pinot Noir is all the rage, right? Mm-hmm. It's for sure an overindulged princess. I am, I, there's so much sweet, expensive, unduly expensive Pinot Noir that I look elsewhere, but I look for that same, um, set of characteristics and I, I call them the S words, wines that are silky, sexy, supple, soft, um, things that are full of allure that those are wines that appeal to me. Um, and Pinot Noir doesn't have, um, a proprietary right to those, as I described them, Pinot characteristics. They happen in things like Grenache. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of Grenache and believe that it's just the warm climate analogy of Pinot Noir. So mm. think about Pinot with just a little extra warmth, a little extra give, um, but all those same S words and it's, it's great. What would be a specific Grenache that people could try to find online to check out? Um, I'm a big fan of Rusden Grenache. Rusden. Yeah. R-U-S-D-E-N. Rusden um, Grenache. And they make a Christine's Vineyard Grenache. It's from the Barossa Valley in Australia. I spent a lot of time there. Um, but to me that Australia is a, is a whole other thing, um, that we could talk about for days, but that wine in particular exhibits so much elegance when Australia maybe as a country is not known for elegance. Um, <laughs> ah, he's a good cante. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and where everything Sorry, so Aussies, I know I butchered that, but <laughs> it's my Kiwi's friends, like their it. influence. Um, it's, it's something very elegant and it punches way above its weight. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, what are some common, uh, and we're going to talk about other things like, uh, whiskey and mezcal and all, all, all sorts of goodness. But before we get to that, what are some common misconceptions about wine or old wives tales, things that annoy you? That's a, that's an interesting question. Um, well, the first one is that more expensive is better. That's definitely not true. I mean, it's absolutely not true. It's like, it's a, a supply and demand thing, um, to a large degree. And so, you know, why, 
you know, and hype. You know, sure. that, that mouton that I poured the Behringer on top of, you know, 20 minutes ago, you know, my most embarrassing sommelier moment. That's, you know, on release, maybe 500 euros a bottle in Europe today before we even get it to America. Why is it that much money? You know, who, who knows other than, um, I mean, they make something like 20,000 cases of it. That's a lot of wine. Yeah. So why is, why does it cost that much money? Because someone said, Hey, this is the best thing in the world. And so everybody has to have it. Right. Um, but is well, it really, like, but is it really worth that? Right. It's like fashion. I it's mean, it's just like fashion. Right. Exactly. And importantly, people, I actually get asked that question a lot. They say, is this wine worth this much money? I say, well, it depends on the individual. I mean, that's, yeah, it's a marketplace question, not necessarily a quality question. A hundred percent. Exactly. Yeah. And so for someone, it might be worth it. And for someone else, it might not be. Yeah. Um, but more expensive is definitely not better. That's a big thing. Um, if color. Some, if somebody wanted to apply a positive constraint, to themselves where they couldn't buy wine over X number of dollars. Yes. Uh, and let's say this is somebody who's, you know, not, not poor, but makes $50,000 a year. Yep. Right. So they're not extremely wealthy either. Yep. Um, super easy to do. Yeah. What is, what is like the sweet spot, right? In, in terms of between 15 and 20 bucks, 15 and 20 bucks. Yep. To, to find a bottle of wine for under $10, you probably don't want to drink it. Yeah. I mean, there are of course exceptions. There's, you know, People get in the weeds. They blow things out, you know, so on and so forth. And so maybe you get a steal every now and again. But as a rule, it's very, very hard to make something for under 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you do it by using fermentation tanks that are as large as a city block with mechanically harvested grapes that were mechanically grown in a place that's probably environmentally very bad. Yeah. Um, I've seen this stuff in, in process and it's, it's gnarly. Um, and you won't have any connection to the land. So between 15 and 20 bucks, you can actually get real wine, um, from real people. Um, it probably won't come from, you know, the fancy Appalachians, but that's great. I mean, those are always there. Who cares? You know, go explore the margins and learn something. And there, there's what, so many thrills. What's another wine between say 15 and 20 or in that range that people probably haven't tried that, that you would suggest they give a go? Um, like I haven't had much Grenache, so I'm going to try some more Grenache. Yeah, please do. Um, you get a lot of, get, get a lot of great Grenache from Spain, um, where it's actually, I mean, for a long time, I had the most widely planted red variety in Spain. And so there's just tons of it. Sometimes it goes by the name of Rioja, where it might be in a blend. Oh, Rio. Okay. So Rioja yeah. is Grenache. With Tempranillo in a oh, blend. Interesting. Yep. Okay. Um, I, I really, I'm a big fan of Rioja. Yeah. We can drink white Rioja too. No yeah. one, no one thinks about that. We say Rioja and everyone thinks red, but white Rioja can be great. It can be super age worthy. It can be very affordable. Um, I drink a lot of, uh, I drink a lot of rosé from the south of France. That's, yeah. you know, 12, 15 bucks. And I, you know, a new producer I'm really smitten with, uh, from the Loire, um, name is Moss, M-O-S-S-E. Uh, the wines are made from the Chenin Blanc grape. They're totally cheap, you know, 20 bucks. Um, and amazing. Really, really, I mean, world class special. I would drink them before pretty much any white wine from California for nice. which you could spend $300. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, so I interrupted you though. You're saying, uh, misconceptions, more expensive is better. And then you said, I, I want to say you said color. Oh yeah. So color, that was what a real pet peeve of mine is a sommelier. You open the bottle of something and pour the taste. And before the taster had even tasted it, you'd be like, Oh, that's great. Or, Oh, that's going to be terrible. Completely based on the color. And you know, as we chat about, you don't smell color and you don't taste color and color has no bearing on quality. At all. Um, yeah. So just because it's dark doesn't mean it's going to be good. You know, mm-hmm. I'd much rather look at, you know, my beautiful date and smell and taste something beautiful than just yeah. be impressed by a big inky glass of whatever. Yeah. Um, 
And the only bearing color has is on the on the actual type of grape, not whether it's good or not. Bear with me one second. My puppy is eating my documents. <laughs> the dog is literally eating my homework. <laughs> one sec. Cutie. What are you doing? Sorry. Great. No, it's all good. She's really getting amongst it today. It's all good. All right. So we are we are still rolling. Uh, so we got the color. And uh, what else? I mean, I know you've you've said before that you think of wine as a grocery. Yeah. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, definitely. That's um that's also born out of that time living in Italy. You know, the, the table is not set until there's wine upon it. it. Might come out of a pitcher and poured into a tumbler, but it's always there. Lunch and dinner, it's on the table. And I lived that when I was living there and I actually brought that back and live it now. Um and so that that's an idea that isn't a very American idea because we're we're so new in terms of of wine drinkers. Uh, as a wine drinking community, we're, we're still so young. Um, but there it's well established, um, for centuries, millennia. Um, and it's that idea that wine ought to be a part of your everyday life. It makes your life better. And so, yes, I have this isn't that wine is a grocery, not a luxury. And I never, this is embarrassing to admit, but I mean, I've been in the Bay Area for 15 years and I didn't become interested in wine until I lived in Argentina for a year. Awesome. And wine was on the table. Mm-hmm. Every single meal. Mm-hmm. Always. Everyone drank wine at dinner. It totally. was just, that is part of the process. It's like setting the table with a knife and fork. Yep. <laughs> you put the wine on the table and then came back with a renewed interest in sort of exploring. Yeah. Um, I mean, similar to the Pinot Noir, I feel like Malbec kind of flooded the market. Totally. It became very popular. And as, as a result, people could get away with sort of murder in terms of low quality and high prices, but the, yep. um, have been exploring more. I just like the, the, the really kind of fruity, High alcohol content, like yeah. Chilean and uh, you know Carmenares and whatnot. In some yep. But um, you now you have expanded though since uh, all of your time in the wine world, and I'm sure there maybe there's similar languages like wine is Spanish and whiskey is Portuguese. But we have we have we have we have a bunch of uh, bottles sitting behind me. Should I go grab those? We should. Okay. And, and six glasses. And six glasses. All right. So we're gonna pause this and go get. A number of things, uh, a number of tools to uh, have alcohol at 11 a.m. in the morning. We'll be right back. So we're laying out six glasses. I asked what type of glasses, and the, the answer was they really just need to be large enough that you can smell. So, you know, like a sake glass wouldn't be large enough. But I'm using, for those people interested, beakers because I'm a weirdo and I like to scare people who come over for dinner into thinking that they might be drinking out of something I put urine in previously. They're 250 milliliter Kymax Kimball beakers. And 250 milliliters is exactly one third a bottle of wine, a standard bottle of wine. And I love these glasses. I was first exposed to them at a place called Flower and Water. Uh, and I'm actually an investor in that group's, uh, one of their other restaurants called Central Kitchen in San Francisco, but they, they used beakers and they also use beakers for candles. And that is, that is a, we have a lot of booze laid out in front of us. I'm excited about this. And, uh, the, um, the whiskey story, I mean, how did you segue I'll let you finish this, the last pour, because we have six of these. Uh, but I'd love to hear how you segued 
from wine to whiskey or if that's always been present? Uh, no, it's definitely a segue. It's, I think of my job as to help people enjoy their lives. Mm -hmm. And I think we do that by helping people find easy ways to get smart about things, which can then increase their, their enjoyment. Frankly, you know, wine was scary. So we write a scratch and sniff wine book that makes it not scary, you know, mm -hmm. knock it off the pedestal, make it easy, make it accessible and tell people that it's actually super democratic. It's up to you. What's, what's good. It's mm -hmm. not up to me. You know, don't, don't drink them because I said to drink it, drink something because you figured out that you like that, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's the key. Um, and so in, in creating that, that book, you create a methodology and, and it's again, breaking it down to its component pieces. It's just like dissecting a frog, like, okay, where's this, where's this, where's this, and how do they make the thing tick? Mm -hmm. Um, and we did that with wine. So you understand that it's again about fruit and earth and wood and those, those things populate all the smells that you're going to smell. And then you can put them back together in whatever order you want to make what you want or make what you want to drink. What'll make you happy? Um, and that same methodology applies to whiskey. Um, there are some things to which it doesn't apply. Like, I don't think it applies very well to beer, particularly with the explosion in craft brewing. Why is that? Because the place part has been so obscured. And uh, so now with, um, you know, we can make a beer in the California. Origin. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, the origin part. So whereas 10 years ago, I think it really mattered. Um we would say, okay, well, this has to be Belgian you know, because you recognize certain flavors that come from certain yeasts that only happen in this place. But now those yeasts are imported here and there's all kinds of souring techniques and things that people do to really obscure place. Mm. So it doesn't, it doesn't apply, um, to beer, but it applies really well to whiskey. Now whiskey, uh, <laughs> I'm cheating a little bit here. This is because <laughs> I know the answer, but I was so excited to see this because I've always felt like a dumbass when trying to write the word whiskey mm -hmm. with or without an E at the end, it depends on the country of origin. And that's it. So it's a great, it's a great rule. It's W I S K Y. If you, if the whiskey comes from a country that doesn't have an E in the name, Scotland, Scotland, Japan, if it comes from a country and Canada, if it comes from a country with an E in the name, Ireland or America, then it's spelled W H I S K E Y. Pretty cool. I, I love that. I love that yeah. trick. It's it's very very cool. There's a, there's another one. This is uh this is just for people like me who are maybe a little slow, perhaps born in a, in a place like Long Island, like I was. <clears throat> I always forget. <laughs> this may reflect how ill suited I am to something like a, a master psalm test, but I always forget which bread is mine and which water is mine. Yeah. So I I'm stealing bread. I'm drinking other people's drinks. And if you, if you touch your index finger to your thumb on both hands, like you're making an okay symbol, your left hand will make a B, that's bread, and your right hand will make a D, which is drink. And that's what I will do under the table sometimes when I'm unsure of which to grab. Tim, I love that. That's super smart. <laughs> uh, and then fork, or if you're setting a table, fork, knife, it's the letter of, it's the number of letters. So, uh, fork is, Four letters, left is four letters. So they, 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 they fit on the, the side associated with the number of letters. I but, love it. uh, so, so you're talking about whiskey. So a lot of the, uh, is, so if wine is few, is whiskey also few? It is fruit, earth, and wood. And so, um, but it, but the fruit in this case isn't fruit as in a grape, it's grain. Right. And so the first thing that affects the outcome of whiskey, I mean, the first thing to know about whiskey is that it's just distilled beer. Mm -hmm. That's it. Like you take beer and you put it in a still and you turn on the heat. 
not too high, but just high enough so that only the alcohol evaporates, right? Because right. it evaporates at a lower temperature than water. And then you condense it and you capture that on the other side of this thing and you've separated the alcohol from the water. Genius. It's called distillation. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we put in at the beginning is just beer. So you make your beer and what do you make the beer from makes a big difference. Um, predominantly, um, corn, wheat, rye and uh, malted barley mm-hmm. are the are the four big grain type cereal cereal grains that are used to make that beer to become whiskey um in america corn is king um and now rye is is sharing the stage as well but if you're drinking bourbon it has to be at least 51% corn now i'm going to i'm going to ask an embar- yet another embarrassing question what is the difference between bourbon and whiskey? Or is bourbon a subset of whiskey? Is it a regional name for whiskey? It's um, So bourbon has a set of laws. It has to come from America. It doesn't have to come from Bourbon County, Kentucky, as, as there is a Bourbon County, Kentucky, but we make bourbon all over the country. So it has to come from America. It has to have been made from at least 51% corn. So the balance can be that rye, it can be the wheat, whatever. Um, and it has to be aged in charred new oak barrels. In new charred, oak. yeah. So you, you fell a tree, you cut the tree into planks, or in this case they're called staves, then you bend them using heat to make a barrel, and then you actually char the inside of the barrel with a flame. And when you do that, it obviously changes its color, but it also... Um, pulls out all kinds of flavors and caramelizes things in that tree, which also contribute flavors. So it's that, you know, it's the brown sugar, it's the brown spices like cardamom and and cinnamon. Um, It's vanilla, lots of vanilla, butterscotch, all those flavors come from that oak barrel. Mm. So if you age it in that barrel and it's made from 51% corn, you did it in America, you have bourbon. That's bourbon. Yep. Cool. So didn't want to interrupt. So the, the, the main options again, can you roll through that? You've got corn, wheat, wheat, Rye, rye and malted barley. Malted barley. What does malted mean? So it means you, you sprout it and you know, just like we would eat sprouts, you know, they, they sprout the grain and then you arrest that process. So you, you kill it essentially with heat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, it's a big deal in scotch production, um, and in Japanese whiskey production as well. So what is um, scotch then? So scotch is any whiskey that comes from Ireland. Ah. Pardon me, Scotland. Duh. Scotland. Yeah, Scotland. <laughs> and, of course, Irish whiskey coming from Ireland. Got it. Got yeah. it. Okay, cool. This is making a lot more sense now because I, I've i never really felt confident. I think part of it is that I'm usually drunk when I'm trying to have these conversations. But <laughs> to have a whiskey conversation, which has been yeah. actually a handicap for me in some cases because I spend quite a lot of time in Japan. Yeah. And they love their whiskey. Oh, my God. And, well, I mean, it doesn't help that we're also speaking Japanese. But... uh so, so what are we looking at here? We have so we we're have, looking at a bourbon mm-hmm. from Jack Daniels. We're looking at E. H. Taylor uh, rye, which is so whiskey made in America, but rye is predominant grain. We're looking at Jameson, straight up Irish whiskey. We're looking at a Nika Takatsuro, seventeen-year-old Japanese whiskey. Ooh. Yep. Um, we're looking at Edradour, which is a low, lower part of the Highlands in Scotland, the region of Scotland, uh, whiskey, but mainland Scotland is the key. Um, so Edradour, 10 year old. And we're looking at Ardbeg. Um, specifically, it's called Ugadal, which is a, Ugadal. it's a scotch made on the island of Isla, which is off the coast. And so very different than mainland Scotland because you're right on the ocean. And so we'll see in these six glasses that the difference that grain contributes and we'll see the different types of oak and what that contributes and then how place really influences the final product. Cool. I'm going to, I'm going to go grab a camera because I want to take a photograph of this for folks before we get into it. Could you please 
describe or explain the tattoos that you have? Why do you have the tattoos that you have and what are they of? So on my right arm is a dandelion. Um, it's a love note to a woman named Carla Rizuski, who I love more than I've ever loved anybody, actually. I didn't think it was possible. It's great. Uh, and she has something very, very similar. Very similar dandelion. Dandelion. Why a dandelion? You know, it's, I, I'm a big fan of how a dandelion changes so rapidly through its life. And I love the part where it ends up with a great big shoot and it actually depends on the wind to disperse its seeds. I think that's just a, it's a beautiful, quiet, profound thing that Very happens. Poetic. Yeah. It's really, really pretty. And, uh, the left, left arm, there's, it's a collection of memories of, and of things that, that have made me happy um, over time. And there's Mount Vesuvius, which I had probably the most amazing single day of my life on. Um, Where is that? It's just off of, of Naples in, in central southern Italy. Um, there's a fish on a bun, so think a fish burger and a mermaid and a heart. And though that's an ode to uh, a mermaid I fell in love with, um, Carla. Yeah. Uh, fell in love with eating fish on a bun sandwiches at the Cup and Saucer Diner on the corner of Canal and Eldridge in Chinatown in Manhattan. Um, there's a seashell with some uh, sea critters in it that are from a... Um, a story I spun for my daughter called uh, Samuel the Sea Cucumber. And he and his friends managed to travel around the entire globe um, in a seashell tethered to a piece of seaweed. And we use it as a, as a lesson in uh, geography and in... Wait, this is a story that you made up or a story that you read? No, that I made up. I that's would, awesome. I would spin it to her every night at bed. And that's so, so we just cool. keep going. And You know, that's how her. the Princess Bride came to be also. That's There's amazing. a story that William Goldman would tell his, I think it might have been his daughter or his son, and then eventually put it down. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's really great. What's the 27? 27. Born in the 27th. 27 is a lucky number um, for me. And it, over and over and over. It keeps repeating itself. And in this case, the red above the gold um, are from an apartment that I, I shared with a Carla in Chinatown. And there were actually three 27s on the building where they were just... There was the original address, and then it all got painted over, and they stuck another 27 on it. And 100 years later, it had patina, and they stuck another 27 on it. And they were just a beautiful series That's cool. of 27. It's very cool. Be and nice. Be nice. Um, it's you know It started as a B, and it was in there for 10 years all by itself. And just B-E. No, just, just the letter B. Oh. And it was a, it was a, it's kind of on the inside. So it was a note to self to just be kind, be thoughtful, benevolent, take your time, just be a good guy, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, I thrash about and, and it's a little remind note to self. Right. Um, and it just grew into be nice and just plain and simple. What about the safety meeting? And what is that? So, Oh, it's some type of mythological creature between the safety and the meeting. Yeah. It's a dragon off the Corona bottle. <laughs> so what's the story there it's a shout out to my homies from the little Nell where we would have safety meetings if you were this is like one of the joys of restaurant work you'd be on the floor and you'd be in the weeds or someone would be yelling at you about something and you just look at your favorite waiter and we'd say safety meeting and we both knew that meant walk into the kitchen walk into my white wine cooler lock the door from the inside pound a corona <laughs> walk back out on the floor and rock service period <laughs> That's amazing. Safety meeting. Safety meeting. Yep. Uh, I was just talking to someone who shall remain unnamed, uh, but very, very high performer. And uh, uh, he, he, with his friends, 
would have they'd have some harebrained question that usually had dangerous implications, and they would say, "Well, let's play, let's find out." Awesome. <laughs> so their code it. was, I "Let's play it. the game, let's find out." It's so good. Uh, so I, I, I interrupted you though because no, no, I was no. I wanted to take photos of this for people, and for those people, go, go to the show notes and you'll get you'll find links to everything we're talking about, but you'll also find the photographs. So that's just fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and click on podcast, and you'll also see photographs of some of the audio gear that I'm using here. But um, so I'm excited about this. So what's what's the next step then? So the next step is you're going to smell the first, which is Jack Daniels bourbon, okay, and Should... the second, which is the E. H. Taylor Rye. Okay. And am so, I am I looking for anything in particular or just well, impressions? Just to, so the the real thing here is okay. So they're both aged in new charred American oak. Um, they're both made in America and Asian America. So wood and place are you know relatively equal. The big difference is that the, the bourbon is 51% at least corn and the rye is rye. And mm-hmm. so when we talk about what are the three things that inform a whiskey? Well, the first one is grain. And that's what I want to illustrate for you here. I'm, I'm hopeful you can smell the difference. The rye should <laughs> be more pungent and spicy. Okay. Let's see. One moment, folks. He's got his nose all the way in that beaker. <laughs> this is like golf commentary. <laughs> like. Yep. Oh, yeah. It's crazy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a huge difference. Yeah. So rye is actually classically, I mean, it's been around forever, but also it's it's used in a Manhattan. Yeah. It's got a it's it has almost like a uh, more of a paint-like bite to it. Okay. So that Or pa- maybe not paint, maybe it's paint thinner than I'm thinking of or like a turpentine. You get that varnishy thing with protracted aging in a barrel. So it does take take that on. So that's a function of, of time. I see. And time and got aging. Got it, got it. The spice from the grain itself should also be there. And and you know, it plays in the same in the same area. When I smell things, I think about it a lot like musical ranges. And so the bass it, you know hangs out down here and those rich things like chocolate and you know the the vanilla can happen down in there sometimes. I have a question. Does it ever take your nose time to warm up because I feel like I just smelled this like the fourth time and I'm getting a lot more from it. 100%. Is it that, does. Okay. And another key would be open your mouth when you smell. Everyone like slams their mouth shut and you actually get less information. Oh, that's but right. If you open that's your what mouth, is it called? The retroactive retronasal. Oh damn it, I was so close. <laughs> but it makes a huge difference. And don't, you know, for those of you listening, don't like take a hard pull on it like you do wine or it'll actually really burn. So with spirits, you can smell really gently. Yeah. You don't, the, you the don't, alcohol you don't is, want to give yourself a, the a, alcohol a, a rye nasal irrigation. Yeah. So, I mean, it almost smells like a rye bread. Yeah. Which is so interesting that that actually comes through. Yeah, it does. You're right. Yeah. And then this guy, the, the Jack Daniels just smells sort of sweet and round mm-hmm. and it doesn't have any of that same spice. So that's the first piece. Mm-hmm. Grape. The next piece, um, or grain gonna, in this case. Oh, pardon me, grain, exactly. Of grape and grain. One of my favorite That's, spots. That could be it. That could be your next book title. It should be. <laughs> um, well, we have to throw agave in there, so succulents. Um, the next is Irish. And so this is Jameson. And just straight Jameson, which is a brand going crazy. But what makes Irish Irish? And I just want you to think about it as it compares to the things before is that, um, Frequently, they distill more than twice, three times. Um, and the farther you go with the distillation, or you can even use a, a column still, um, which we need not bother ourselves with. The point is, the farther you go with the distillation, the more you take out of it, right? So if we start with 
our beer is a hundred liters and we distill it, we end up with, I don't know what, 30 liters. And if you distill that again, maybe now you're at 15 liters and you distill it again and now you're at seven and a half liters. Is it subsequently removing more of the characteristics that make it unique? I mean, that's you, exactly what it is. You're getting closer to rubbing alcohol. It, that's 100%. You're all over it. Vodka, essentially. Yeah. So it has nothing to say. Um, it has something to say, but it's not saying it very loudly. So, that's a, a very Irish thing to do. So this is like the Catholic school version. Exactly. Uh, spoke when spoken to. A hundred percent. hundred percent. So it's, it's, um, it's, this is where p- process is a function of place. And so this is typically what happens with the vast majority by volume of, of Irish whiskey. Do you have any idea why they do that? Because I would, I'm just thinking back to like Ireland, potato famine. Why would they take such a high volume of stuff and, and make it smooth and make it, well, make it so, much smaller. Oh, reduce also. it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I think it was really a matter of, of what people favored in terms of drinking. Okay, sure. And, and so it's so different than Scotland and each of them were competing for the, the royal favor. You know, what are we, what are people going to drink and what's going to be the drink, mm-hmm. right? That is, they're very, very different and they've each enjoyed popularity at different times. So Jameson, <clears throat> this should bring back some memories for me because I remember being in Dublin and this was in, for those of you who've read the four hour work week, this was in 2000, Late 2004, I had just landed. I was in London. Then Ireland was recommended. Landed in Dublin, and later they said, "What the hell are you doing in Dublin? You should go to Galway." And that's how I ended up there. But the I got really into hurling, and awesome. Guinness sponsors the senior sort of nationals and the, the, the competition for this. For those who haven't seen hurling, not the puking game. That's also popular in Ireland, <laughs> but it's the fastest field sport in the world. It's like lacrosse plus baseball with axe handles on a soccer field. It's extremely violent, fantastic game. But I wanted to take a tour of the Guinness factory as a result. I was just curious. I don't really drink beer. Got on a bus. It was a hop-on, hop-off bus. Got to the Guinness uh, factory, or brewery, I suppose. Massive, as you'd imagine. And the line was, this was probably 9.30 in the morning, and the line was just hundreds of people. Wow. And I opted out. I was like... No, I don't even really drink beer. If it were easy, I would do it, but no thanks. A few stops later, the Jameson Distillery shows up. And I'm like, okay, sure, let's check it out. I go in and they go, okay, well, for later, we're going to need a few volunteers. And raise my hand, they pick maybe two or three of us. And later, we have to do a tasting, but a marathon tasting. And so all of us wander out at like 10 a.m., completely shit-faced drunk. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> that was my introduction to Jameson. I love so, it. So am I, should I smell for anything in particular? I think just relative to the last one. So again, this is okay. like developing your context. And I mean, I have some things that I attribute to Irish whiskey, um, but I would rather you smell sure. unfettered. And oh, it's very part subtle. Your, part your lips just a little bit. Yeah, it is subtle. Exactly. God, I'm getting anxious like a school child who no, feels no, like he's going to the there's, exam there's naked. No wrong answer. It's that that's the whole key to this, is that you just use your own I vernacular. Found out that I had a deviate that I have a deviated septum on one side of my and one nostril. Okay. Which has been like bothering me for years. Uh but I just thought I always had a stuffy nose. I I know that it's it's much understated compared to the other two. Totally. Exactly. But I'm not sure. And so why is vodka so popular? Because it doesn't taste like anything, you know, and you can mix it with you things. You mix it with stuff. And so that, that subtlety and its amiability 
make it actually quite popular. It's very right? flexible. Yeah, it's very flexible. It's very easy to drink. Um, it's a little bit lower proof than the rye I poured you. Um, you know, lower percentage alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that, that comes from the process associated with the place. You know, you keep mm-hmm. distilling, you keep thinking, taking things out. It has less to say. Uh-huh. And it, to me, it's always kind of grassy, yeah. kind of herby, a little bit of like a honey thing maybe. But, you know, those are just personal adjectives. I, would have, I mean, have you found, is the nose like height, meaning it's like you are born with a certain nose and uh, it's, it's, it's maybe malleable a little bit, but not very, or is it like muscle totally mass trainable. where you yes. can develop it? I think it's totally trainable. My dad's a great example. He was like, I can't smell anything. And you know, her son's getting into wine and now he can smell everything. And it's just, it's like a radio. You just have to tune it in. Right. And when, and once you get there, um, I think it's I'm so greedy. I'm like my dog. I stuck my nose right into yeah. it. <laughs> it's, um, you know, when, when we were hunter gatherers, we depended on this scent of smell for life, right? Yeah. You know, I can eat that or I can't eat that. That's rotten. That's poison, whatever yeah. it is. And it's, we don't have to rely on it at all yeah. to the same degree. So it's the first of the senses that we tune out. Yeah. And so when you get into this, it's a matter of just tuning it back in. I think part of that is the amount and the frequency with which we eat. When I, yeah. I've done a number of fasting experiments and uh, for instance, I just fasted, I broke a fast last night. So I fasted okay. for uh, a short fast for me, like 48 hours. Okay. And your evolutionary biology upgrades your smell immediately. Like wow. whatever, brain power is dedicated elsewhere mm-hmm. is suddenly harnessed for the nose. It's really interesting. That's super cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. They do that for, uh, falconry also. I understand as if they're doing hunting or any type of precision work with falcons, they will st- uh, starve's a hard word, but they'll restrict their food yep. so that their senses are sharpened. That's amazing. Yeah. Pretty wow. cool. Uh, yeah, if you guys want to see something crazy, you can watch falconry in Mongolia where they hunt deer with falcons. Uh, so what's, let's see, we were here. Yep. The Jameson. So we're going to leave Ireland and mm-hmm. we're going to go to Japan. Mm-hmm. And so the Japanese model is very much based on the scotch model, which you're going to have in the last two glasses. Um, so malted barley. So this is really a, a single malt. When it's a single malt or you read that on a bottle, it just means that it's made from malted barley. No, the Jameson, what are the grains in the Jameson? Um, so barley, wheat, rye. Okay. No corn, no. which makes sense. I, you know, there, or, there could be corn in here, but it's, it's definitely. Those are the primary. Exactly. And, yep. and then the Japanese is the malted barley. It's malted barley. And so those guys took their cues from Scotland as to how to do this. And they're very much trying to, to, or tried to emulate what they did in Scotland. But it happens in Japan, so it has the place factor is yeah. a, is a big big difference. And I always get some. Um, for me, it feels you have a much deeper understanding of Japan than I do. But I I always find things to be very subtle and very beautiful and very complicated, but not outwardly so. Right, so not like, ostentatious. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I love Japanese oh, whiskey. It smells delicious, doesn't it? it? Smells very floral to me. Yeah. So that's it. You're right on it. It's, it's, Tim's actually a great taster. Give <laughs> <laughs> me. I appreciate yeah. the the pat on the podcaster bag, but yeah. I got the floral. Uh, so that's that's the Japanese t- also love barley. So one of my yep. favorite things. The part of the reason that I'm liking this artichoke tea that I'm mm-hmm. keeping cold. Yep. Is I really became a fan of 
huge fan of barley tea. I think it's barley tea, mugicha. I'm taste this. Yeah, go for it. Uh, there's a tea called mugicha, M U G I. Cha is just tea, C H A. So it's like, like, you know, if you have, even in Chinese, it's the same, like, oolong cha. Cha mm-hmm. is the same thing. But the mugicha, they, they use in the summer and drink cold. Cool. Uh, so they, they, barley is, is used elsewhere in Japan, but I get a very, yeah, you guys should try that out if you have the chance. Uh, or you can try some some chilled artichoke tea without anything else. But uh, I really like the smell of this. And this yeah. is, what is this called again? So this is from uh, Nika, and it's specifically Taketsuru. Taketsuru. And 17 years old. Taketsuru. That That's f- like, Taketsuru is like a, a bamboo crane. I think somebody can correct me here, but Tsuru, I think, is crane. It might be heron, but Take is... Uh, uh, I think it's like shiitake, or no, maybe those are two different, uh, that mainly is in the mushroom, but bamboo, that's cool. That's very cool. It's very cool. Well, that floral thing you hit on and sometimes referred to as old temple in this whole whiskey. Old temple. In this it's like incense. Incense, cedar, and, and sandalwood. Oh, what an amazing smell. Isn't that cool? That smells really good. So that's made a whole lot like this next one is made, Edredauer. What is it called? Edredauer. How the hell do you spell that? You spell it. E-D-R-A-D-O-U-R. Uh-huh. Got it. And so that's from mainland Scotland. So the big variable here is place, mm-hmm. right? And so all things being equal, you've got Japan versus mainland okay. Scotland. Very different. So different. Totally different, right? God, you know, I need to smell more things. I need to, like, follow my puppy around and smell everything, or most things. Not everything my puppy likes, I'd like. <laughs> I'm having a really tough time pinning it down, but it has a very, very particular yep. scent to it. What would you... Oh, man. It's fun to poke at it. And then when it, when all of you are smelling, they shouldn't, you shouldn't rush. I, I would say one of the great joys of smelling and tasting things, and if I had to pick one particular moment... Um, I first time I smelled a Rutherglen Muscat. So Muscat dessert wine made in Rutherglen, Australia. And I'd never had one before. And I picked it up and I smelled the glass. And immediately I was back in fifth grade after school running through my grandmother's front door and she just pulled ginger snaps out of the oven. Huh. And that memory, I mean, I was 35 years old when that happened. And it's that like, memory it's like, it's like the ratatouille in the movie when exactly. Anton Ego eats the ratatouille. Exactly. It's so cool. <laughs> it's so cool. But, and so however old each of us are, we have that many years of memory based on smell. And it's so cool to let those just come floating back God. to you. I can't pin this down. I want to say it's like a very dark chocolate or something, but I, I'm with you. Yeah. I, I, I can't, I can't quite nail it. It's, it's a very familiar smell to me that isn't scotch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what would you, I mean, how would you describe this? What descriptors would you use? For me, this is, this is actually quite rich. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's actually, it does have this sort of malted milkshake thing, the vanilla mm-hmm. part, but it also has a lot of oak on it. So it does have that richness that almost milk chocolate, caramel vanilla Maybe that's thing. it yeah i mean it's it's pretty round and voluptuous for scotch yeah i guess it's like a milkshake it has that kind of milkshake type smell to exactly. it exactly so what do they put in the milkshake just malt that's Same true stuff. that's so right it's the malt from the milkshake that smells like the malt and uh, that's what i'm associating right because i've had more milkshakes than i have had scotch isn't that cool that is cool that's super cool okay so the last glass same country scotland but now you're out on an island where the, the cast, so this is really about place. And so, so same process in terms of, of making this stuff. Um, 
in terms of distillation and cask aging, but where and, oh, cask aging, yeah, exactly. But when you're what type the, of wood are they aging it in? So great question. Used barrels from Jack Daniels, amongst other um, bourbon producers, and used sherry barrels. So from the south of Spain, use Madeira barrels from the island of Madeira. And the sherry barrels are made out of what type? Is that also oak? It's all oak. It's all oak. And so if you... Is there any type of cask aging that is not done in oak? Yeah, there's uh, chestnut, which is common in northern Italy, but that's that's more for wine. Got yeah. it, got it, got yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. All right. So these, this all happens by the ocean. So there's the use of peat. This last one. Yes, exactly. So place matters a lot here because peat is used um, in a really profound way. So when we malt the barley, right, you're taking the barley, you're getting it wet, you're letting it sprout. And then we halt that sprouting process with heat and the heat comes from burning peat. Uh, and so in this case, in this case, in the last case on the island. Yeah. What is, it's a moss, right? Yeah. It's, it's essentially, um, a stage short of coal. So it's compressed dead grass, dead moss. And it's, it's a biofuel. Uh, And so you cut it out in like bricks of really dark looking adobe almost. Interesting. So it's like cow dung that you would burn for fuel in Mongolia and eat. Interesting. So that flavors it. But then also you age these casks by the seaside. Yeah. I get things like, in addition to smoke, iodine, brine, salty. Yeah, it does have a briny, yeah, a briny, uh, briny smell to it. So different. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. This is fun, guys. You should definitely do this. Um, and so, those are the short strokes with this. So you just put some things next to each other and you can really supercharge your learning and say, okay, so what does place do? Well, you've just seen. Yeah. What does oak do? Well, you've just seen. And you can treat it like what a workout. I mean, you treat it like an actual 100%. learning session. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so you sort of separate the recreation from the 100%. learning, even though you can transport the learning then to the enjoyment, but exactly. keep the training separate. So, uh, what's next? What's next? Uh, we release a book on this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> What's next as it relates to me with this, this, this plethora of, of get goodness drinking. in front of me? Get, get drinking. drinking. How would you now? So I have six of these. Yes. In front of me. Any particular order? I would or? go in the same order that we tasted. Actually, no, I'm going to put the Irish first. It has the least to say. Let's start there. Okay. So and you're then starting with the lightest. Exactly. Got it. Okay. So this yep. is the Jameson that we're starting. The Jameson. With. Exactly. How much when you're tasting something like this? Um, you know, just a little bit enough to get it down your throat. I think, um, you know, you see a lot of wine tasting, everyone spits and so on and so forth. And, and you should, I mean, first of all, I want to advocate responsibility. That's important. You got to, you got to do what's right for you. But if you're really going to get the information and you have nowhere to go, you got to swallow a little bit because you feel certain things in certain parts of your mouth. There are also taste receptors. Yeah. Outside of the mouth. A lot of people don't realize this. And all the way down to the stomach even. Or, I mean, further through the GI process. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So it's your first of the day, so you're probably feeling the alcohol. Yeah. But beyond that, you know, what do you feel? Oh, God, I just feel like I lack the vocabulary here. I'm I'm being asked to name musical notes, but I don't know how to read sheet music. Don't Uh, don't read sheet music. Use your own vocabulary. uh, This is like, for those of you who have seen the chess lesson between Josh Waitzkin and myself, it was an extra for the Tim Ferriss experiment. <laughs> My face uh, looks about the same right now. Uh, <laughs> the I should really have an answer, and I don't have an answer. Yeah. It doesn't really have a lot to say. I, I mean, don't, it, it I, tastes kind of boozy, and it tastes yeah. kind of thin, and there's not a whole lot that's, to it. That's okay. That's pretty much what I would say. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, yeah, I don't have a lot more to add to that. Totally. I mean, you could add ginger ale and maybe make it, I mean, there's nothing yeah. wrong with Jameson, but you know, yeah. point, point being like, you know, that's why it gets mixed with things. Got it. Got it. Okay. okay. And Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels. And this is bourbon. So, yep. Got it. Back to me. Well, corn. Essentially. It's, ten, it's Tennessee whiskey. Tennessee whiskey. Yeah. Okay. So what's the difference? That's, this is a question while you're tasting. The difference between Tennessee whiskey and bourbon um, is that Tennessee whiskey actually does have to come from Tennessee. Hmm. Um, and it has. if you come from Tennessee, you actually have to go through this other thing called the Lincoln County process where they filter the booze through a 10-foot uh, column of charcoal, and that just takes out impurities, and so it makes it smoother, right? But essentially, the, the Tennessee process, apart from that, that filtering and bourbon are very, very similar. So I want to say, I think I'm just, I might be pulling rabbits out of a hat here and I don't even know there are rabbits in the hat. It's a <laughs> terrible metaphor, but, uh, I get a more viscous sort of caramelly type experience. Absolutely. Um, totally different from the Jameson. That's due to the heavy corn use mm-hmm. here and it's due to the new wood that's used mm-hmm. here so the jameson doesn't use uh the, near the same amount of the charred new barrels that the jack does yeah. and so it gives it that richness gives it that viscosity mm-hmm. now what about um how would you explain for instance i went to kentucky to visit drew curtis who's a friend of mine at one point he uh, runs a site called fark which uh, fark.com which is hilarious and amazing you should all check it out and we went, we went through a lot of bourbon and whiskey and whatnot. And I didn't really gel with bourbon until I had bullet bourbon. And okay. I have a bunch behind, you know, kind of behind us in the, in the cabinet, uh, B-U-L-L-E-I-T. And the way that someone explained that to me was it has a higher rye content. And that's mm-hmm. probably why you like it. Yep. But if, if you had to, to guess or to, to explain that, what would you say? Like, is it, why did, why was bullet so much easier for me to drink? I think it's a, it's a little, I mean, the, compared to the Jack, what I find somewhat showy, you know, yeah. it has a lot of, you know, the volume's turned up on just a couple of things. Yeah. Um, to me, the volume isn't turned up quite as loud with the bullet and there may be more pieces to it. You know, Got it's it. almost a little finer, has a little bit more cut on the palate. And I don't mean bludgeon, like, you know, straight punch in the face of flavor. It just, it's almost um, more live. In okay, a, in a, a little more way. subdued. Exactly. Yeah, got yeah. it. So it's like if you're listening to music and the bass is out of control exactly. and shaking your car, Yep. the rest of it might be fine, but you can't listen to it for very long. Exactly. Got it. Interesting. Yeah, the bullet's tasty. I do, I do like the bullet quite a bit. So let's see. We are on... The E.H. Taylor Rye. All right. What do you think? <laughs> Sorry, guys. <I'm, laughs> these silences must be fascinating for you guys. It's, it, yeah, it's, ha- it's very, has a lot of bite. So I'm, I struggled to. Ooh. Yep. It comes ha- from two things. It has a lot of bite. So I was really struggling to try to separate the, and this is the one that I said smelled more like turpentine to me. Exactly. It, it's, um, I was struggling to sort of separate that, that like, kick in the nuts yep. from the 
flavor profile, but I just, I was having trouble. I was yeah. having trouble doing it. it. Takes practice, 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 yeah. practice. So the, the bite comes from, you have 10% more alcohol here than the last one you drank. So mm. for sure you feel that, but also the rye gives it a bite. And they sort of play in the same range. And we were talking about musical ranges. You know, yeah. the turpentine um, can also play in the same range as the rye. They're all high-toned aromatics. What and is here, that? What, what do you mean by that? So when I when I smell, I think about the musical range, and you know, the, the fat notes are the bass, yeah, right? Yeah. And then there's this mezzo, which everything has. It's kind of uh, you know, neither here nor there. But the alto tends to be where these these high-toned notes of of flowers, of spice, um, yeah. something like turpentine. These it's it's the stuff that lives up up high and yeah. you can almost physically feel that in your nose when you smell oh oh yeah, yeah. i did 100 percent. yeah yeah it's pretty it's pretty interesting and so the rye on the palate plays almost in the same vein as the alcohol that serves to make it spicy and give it cut huh now I've, i was just wondering there are standardized tests for vision uh and people have eye checks up checkups they go to the ophthalmologist or whatever they're standardized uh, tests for hearing. Yes. I can't think of any time in my life when I've had my smell tested. Yeah. Unless do, you faint, they put, you know, smelling those, salts on do you. Do those exist though? I mean, are there standardized smelling ability measurements of any type? Not that I know of. No. What the hell's up with that? That's it, so well, weird. You know what? I wouldn't endorse them even if there were. I'm, I'm a big believer in making this thing inclusive. Not exclusive. No, no, no. Understood. But like, for instance, if you wanted to, not exclusive in the same way that like some people say, if, if you have a mixed dog, you shouldn't try to find out what the breed is because then you'll impose on that dog expectations. Yep. And in the same way, if you found out you had a, a low, I'm interested in it not so much to decide if I am a good or a bad smeller, but to be able right. to, to track some type of progress sure. if as a metric. That's fair. But just, you know, like if you wear glasses, you can never fly a fighter plane. I wouldn't want anyone to feel like they can't be a happy drinker if they, you know, I have a bad nose. Right. And they feel condemned right. to not participate. Okay. Fair enough. I guess it depends on how quirky their nerddom is when it comes to metrics and tracking. <laughs> I have lots of foibles and uh, neuroses, but fortunately, I guess I can, I can get a bad report card and just want to improve it. Yeah, totally. Uh, totally. So this is back the Japanese. To Japan. Back yeah, to Japan. Exactly. Oh, That means long time no see, basically. Um, which, by the way, is from Chinese, actually. It's um, which literally means, well, yeah, it's like long time no see. Uh, which is the same jian as zai jian. See you again. Uh, all right, so this is the Japanese taketsuru. Yep. He's thoughtfully tasting everyone. <laughs> That is amazing. That I love that. That's very it's just very silky. It's not yep. there aren't any kind of rough aspects to it. Nope. Like no. I could just sip that for hours. Me too. And yeah. I do. Wow. It's um I'm gonna write that one down. Well, this is the what was it, seventeen year? Mm-hmm. Seventeen year Nika N I K K A. Yep. Taketsuro. Taketsuro. T A K E T S U R U. Yes. Wow, that's good stuff. Yeah. So it comes back to that idea of balance, right? Yeah. And, and use. So like the first four you tasted are maybe balanced in different ways, but I, I don't think you liked the rye quite as much. The rye, I could like on the rocks as one drink with some yep. bros before we play pool. Fine. Exactly. But I couldn't sit down and nurse that right. over like hours of a poker game. Isn't that interesting? And then similarly, you might, you might not take the takatsuru 
and make a Manhattan with it like you right. would the rye, right? Yep. So then yep. you add sweet vermouth, it calms the rye down. You stir it over rocks and temperature calms the rye down, right? Mm-hmm. So all these, you know, it's like, where, where's the end point for these things? So I'm with you. I'm probably not sipping the E.H. Taylor rye you yeah. know, very often, um, unless I'm around a campfire and that's all there is, but the Takatsuro all you know, day long. The, um, it is really fascinating how, uh, whether it's the Irish distilling process the characteristics of the Japanese scotch, they really match the sort of cultural stereotypes yep, well. Totally. Um, there's, a, there's a really, I think it's a fascinating book. There are gems in it, even though uh, some of it may be found very boring to people. Uh, it's a short book called In Praise of Shadows, and it's a book on sort of architecture and aesthetics written by a Japanese fellow whose name is escaping me right now. I want to say like Tanizaki, but I could be making that up. And uh, just talks about how, for instance, you, uh, people in the West will buy objects from Japan that have uh, gold foil or embroidering and put it in their homes, but it looks gaudy. Yep. And the reason that was, or the reason that's the case is that Japan and Japanese aesthetic makes use of shadow and darkness more. So they, they compensated for that darkness by having uh, more amazing. ornamentation with things like gold. Smart. Because you'd be seeing it in low light settings. Yep. And just the, the whole book is really interesting. It talks about, you know, the, the, uh, he has very strong opinions about, you know, Japanese versus Western toilets and whatnot. It's just, it's, it, but that type of sensibility. Uh, you can detect even in the, Absolutely. even in the scotch, which is and, cool. And you, it applies to wine too. Same, yeah. same parable. Huh. Yeah. Uh, and then this, now we have the mainland. Mainland. Edredauer, 10 year old scotch. All right. Now, I'll, I'll, while I taste, I'll let you answer this. I think that a lot of people, myself included, tend to assume or, have a bias towards older age. Like, oh, it must be better if it's older. It's the same. What's the, it's the same rule with wine. More expensive yeah. isn't better. Older isn't better. Um, and in some cases you can actually go really too far. I mean, I feel like for you that the, the, the rye, which is 10 years old is probably beyond the pleasure principle for Tim and things age at different rates depending on where they are. So it's cold and wet in Scotland. Proof can actually tend to come down. In the aging, you can lose some alcohol through evaporation. And, um, whereas you lose less water because it's, it's so humid, but it takes, because it's cooler and wetter, it takes more time to develop the patina that happens with age. Mm. Whereas if you're in a, a rick house, which is just an aging warehouse in Kentucky, like even today, you know, end of summer, it's hot. It's really hot. So that whole thing proceeds at a much greater pace, right. much faster. And you can, you can blow right by the sweet spot and get to something that just becomes a, a varnishy, turpentiny extract of oak, and you've lost all the other character and nuance. So, which makes perfect sense, right? I mean, because if you have that added heat, all the metabolic processes are accelerated. Exactly. Now, what was the name of this again? I'm so bad at spelling anything from Scotland because there are lots of O-U-G-H's and so on that exactly. I, I can't make sense of. But what was the name of that again? This is Edradour. So E-D-R-A-D-O-U-R, 10-year I think I it's li- actually Scotland's smallest distillery. I like this a lot. It's my favorite in Scotland. Oh, no kidding. Yep. This is delicious. On the mainland. Yeah. Really, really nice. And I don't... Words are failing me, uh, which I suppose happens a fair amount, but particularly in this case. How would you describe this? To me, it's 
it's pretty and rich, which is kind of a, it's a, again, back to balance. It's a hard balancing point. It's easy to get rich. Well, I feel like it's, how do you stay pretty? Yeah. Well, I also feel like it's strong. Like it has, uh, and look guys, for those people listening, like I get really irritated by sort of the snobbery that can come with a lot of this, but I'm lacking better words to use. But if so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of ridiculous stuff out there when it comes to, um, beverages at the high end and so on. However, with this, like the way I would describe this is it's a lot stronger, not necessarily in alcohol content, but the, the characteristics and the flavors are a lot stronger than Japanese, Exactly, but just short of like really headbutting me in the face, like the, uh, the rye, the rye. Yeah. And so this I could do for a longer period of time. Totally. You know, it's kind of like 75 is perfect. 85, if you're in the sun, can be too much. And this is like hanging out right below that threshold. Yep. I totally agree. feels like more. I mean, when I taste this, I actually taste raisinets. Oh, interesting. It's such a trip. I mean, I get the, the malted milkshake thing, but also like that, the chocolate over the raisin. And it's rich and it's yummy and it wears the alcohol well. Mm. Yeah, I do get it. Yeah. I mean, power of suggestion being what yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? But yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what about, uh, let's, so this is the, the Islander. Exactly. This is full gas on a lot of fronts. <laughs> the big, it's rich. It's, uh, the most alcoholic on the table as 54.2% alcohol. So that's a hundred and eight point four proof. Not for the meek from Ardbeg. Ugadal. Yeah, that'll put hair in your chest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had mm-hmm. trouble with that. I was trying to do the, the what is it, the aeration and yep. swishing and whatnot. I was like, oh my god, I could barely get the first part down. If I could just put a little bit in your mouth and it just like yeah. fills your whole cranium with Head. this crazy perfume. Yeah, it's um, very perfumed, mm-hmm. very smoky, yeah. just like before. I love sipping on these, but just in small amounts. Yeah. It's not a drink. It's like, it's a sip. Yeah. That would have to be like sitting, reading a book. Someplace At cold. your own speed. Someplace yeah. cold. Yeah. Cold, <laughs> snowing outside. Sounds, yeah. Like an island in Ireland, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Or Scotland. <laughs> or Scotland. I'm so sorry. Jesus. I did All it earlier, Scottish right? And I'm, I'm supposed punching, to know. Punching them, the earphones as we speak. Yeah. Uh, so the now let's let's talk about one other thing and and we can introduce it maybe as as uh, a story. So tell me this the story you told me about the convoy. Yes. <laughs> and let's use that as a segue okay. into Mezcal. Yes. Let's do. Um so I was telling a story about uh, I have a Mezcal brand it's called Sombra. Um I started 10 years ago actually when everybody thought I was selling mescaline like <laughs> Like, Richard, you're going to go to jail. I was like, what do you mean I'm going to go to jail? I'm like, well, mescaline's illegal. It's a drug. I was like, no, 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 no. It's not mescaline. It's mezcal. You know, without going through the long strokes, um, 10 years has taken us a long ways. And we've gone from a time when everybody thought that it's actually, you know, on everybody's lips. Mm -hmm. Um, So mezcal is really the authentic agave spirit of Mexico. Everyone talks about tequila. Tequila has really changed and in a lot of ways has been bastardized over, over the last, you know, well, since 1860 when it became tequila. Before that, it too was mezcal. So for me, the idea is how in do you- In what ways, I'm sorry to interrupt, in what ways has it become bastardized? So at a certain point, you could have used dozens of different types of agave to make 
and you can still mezcal and tequila was one of those things. Um, and when it went from being vino de mezcal to being tequila, they legislated for industry, not for artistry. So no longer could you use these, you know, 20 some flavors of no, agave, it's just blue agave, or? just blue. And they'd say, because it's the best. Well, it's not necessarily the best. It's the best if you want something to grow big, fast, soft, so it's easy to cut. Uh, and, and now they've created this monoculture of, I mean, it's like the cheetahs. There's no DNA variability. And so the first You thing said like that, cheetahs? Yeah. You know how they're about to be extinct because there's, there's like, Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Their, their gene pool is so tiny that if like uh, they, everyone's afraid if one of them catches the flu, they're all going to die. Oh, yeah. there's no variability. None whatsoever. Huh. So the same things happen in tequila with blue agave. And that's, so that's why they have these blights that take out all these plants. Tons of production. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. yeah. All right. And so in addition to the plant, it was the, the processing methods have changed. And you, you are so far from what was originally produced in tequila um, to get to what they're making today that, hey, I still drink the stuff. But, yeah. um, but it's not. If you drink tequila, what do you drink? It's kind of like the Dos Equis guy. I don't drink tequila often, yeah. but when I do. I drink, I drink a lot of Siete Leguas. I think what was it called? Siete Leguas. Okay. They do a great job, I think. Siete, seven? Uh-huh. Lenguas? Leguas. Leguas. Yep. L-E-G-U-A-S. Huh. Um, I like the guys at Tequila Ocho. Actually, I don't know the guys at Tequila Ocho. I like their tequila a lot. Yeah. Um, and then we make one called Astral, like Astral. Yeah. Which is really a deliberate throwback to what was it like before 1860 when they legislated for Got it. basically vodka production. Um, so for me, mezcal is... It's the, it's the real thing, you know, it embodies that intellectual value we've been talking about and it embodies plot, uh, process and place and people and a geology and a geography and a history and a cuisine. It's all in there. So that's, that's interesting to me. And so we've been down there doing this stuff, but it, it's definitely, um, what is mezcal for, so for people who haven't had it? So think of it as tequila from the rest of Mexico, but for sure it's going to be more full flavored. So much like this last scotch you had that, um, where they used peat in the process that gives it that smoky has, quality. Yeah. It has a very smoky exactly. characteristic. So if we just take a, a step back and you think, okay, well, what is, if mezcal is made from agave, what's agave? Agave is starch and you need yeast to eat sugar to make alcohol. Yeast don't eat starch. So you may, the way you turn a starch into a sugar is with heat. And today, um, it's done with steam or even with enzymes in some strange cases, um, cases I, I try to avoid personally, but, um, traditionally it's done with fire. And so in mezcal production, you actually dig a hole in the ground, you build a fire, you put rocks over that fire, and then you put the agave hearts in there and you roast them for two days buried in the ground. And that that heat converts the starch to sugar. It also, much like this last scotch, it imbues it with a smoky flavor. And right. so that's why mezcal has that smoky quality. Ah. And so think of it like, you know, the original tequila plus right. smoke. And, uh, that's based in Mexico. That's based in Oaxaca, Oaxaca, Mexico. So almost the very also bottom. famous for mole, also famous for mole, great food, amazing people, amazing traditions. Um, and a little unpredictable. Or? It's, yeah, it's definitely unpredictable. Um, you, you can, you know, there's so much beauty and so many wonderful things, and, and you definitely have to watch your step. So what, what happened with the convoy? Uh, so what happened with the convoy where there was, was some, some friends and business associates, and um, after being out at our palenque, our two cars pulled back on, you know, so it's a 17, palenque is where you distill, and after driving from the distillery in the mountains, 17 kilometers down a dirt road back to the main highway, which is the Pan American, we turned onto the Pan American Highway, 
And two trucks of state police soldiers pulled in front of our two cars and started slowing down. And uh, the guy who was driving the car in front of us didn't understand the clues, which is we were also supposed to slow down and stop. Was with he them. Mexican? Yeah, he was. Yeah, huh. he's Oaxacan. Yeah, young. He's the son of the guy that was driving our car. Got it. Um, and just didn't didn't know the clues. Didn't pick um, up on the hint, which was a little scary because you know, and you know, in a in half a breath, you had two trucks of soldiers with their rifles pointed at the car, and my my. Uh, the guy that works for us down there is, is an amazing guy. He's been there forever. He knows the clues and he's like grabbing the kid, stop the car, stop the car. And I would imagine, Narrowly I mean, averting and disaster. They're, and they're stopping the car. I would imagine, I mean, I've had this experience in Panama. I've had it in many other places to extract, potentially extract like a mordida, like a little, extract. have a nice day. Yeah. Yeah. Have a nice day. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't think I've actually been on that road without having been, stopped and had the car emptied at one point or another. Um, you know, I'm told from our, our local friends that it's always better when we're in the car, mm. you know, I wouldn't obviously know the converse situation. Um, but you know, all in all, everybody's okay. And that's all that yeah. matters. I had a scary experience in, uh, well, scary because I'm not accustomed to this happening elsewhere in say, the United mm-hmm. States, but in Panama where I was driving out from Panama city to, I want to say Boquete, where I was actually driving, to in to the coast to go to the Coiba Marine Reserve, which is amazing, and I uh, got stopped a million times because <laughs> just like obvious white dude in a, in yep. a pickup truck driving. And uh, the tip I got before arriving in Panama was get an international driver's license, okay? Because when they pull you over, they're going to ask you for your passport, and if you hand it over, you won't get it back. Now you won't get it back until you do everything that they ask you to do. Yep. But if you have an international driver's license and you say you don't have a passport and then they say, well, we're supposed to find you, but then you have to go to do trial and this place and the other. And then the protocol, the dance is, is there any way I could pay my fine now? Exactly. <laughs> and then, yep. But the price is going to be 10, 20, 100 X if they have your passport as opposed to the international driver's license. Yep. So. Same thing happens in France all the time. In France, oh, the joke used to be with myself and my friends when we were doing a lot of wine work there is that you know don't let Richard drive right off the plane. So at some point, first day getting pulled over, same story. Give me your passport. Of course, I'm never giving them my passport. You can have my driver's license. There's yeah, plenty yeah. of those. But um, same same France. story. Oh yeah, pay the fine right on the side of the road. Oh god, right on the side of the road. Yeah. That's god, so wild. Yeah, it happens more places than not. I would say. Yep. For sure. Brazil's the scariest, but that's another podcast. Yeah. Uh, you can see, uh, what is it? Trupa de Elite, the uh, elite squad or elite team. There's a movie. You can watch that and then you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, the second one's pretty good as well. Um, so the, uh, let me, let me ask you, uh, a couple of rapid fire questions as I nurse this Taketsuru. Do it. Uh, when you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind and why? My folks, both of them equally. My parents. Why? They were able to come from a place that's, I mean, I, I consider myself successful, but when I look at what they did, I think of their road as having been so much harder, so much harder. I'm super impressed. So is, is success then in the overcoming of obstacles? It's finding your way to happiness. That's what it is. And and that doesn't have to be associated with anything material or not. And for them, it was just changing the surroundings and finding a way out when, right. you know, there was no helping hand. You got to, you got to do it yourself. When do you, so if you had to pick someone besides your parents, pick someone beside my parents, well, I, you and I share lots of friends, many of whom are successful and sure. it's really anyone that makes their own way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so our buddy, I mean, yeah, Saka, he's yeah. been on the podcast. Extremely successful. I'd say he's cut his own way. He's cut his own way. Um, I mean, Obama's cut his own way. You know, mm-hmm. so many people... <laughs> Just to be clear, folks, that is not a mutual friend, or at least I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know him on a yeah. first name basis. Yeah, but you know, I mean, it's someone that, that's <laughs> you know, maybe against odds has, has figured out how to do what they love to do. Yeah, and that's pretty cool. When do you lose track of time? I lose track of time on airplanes where I spend a lot of time. And I actually, Tim, I really try to take that time for myself. I, I like getting on the airplane. And there are times, like this morning when, when I flew here, it's like, you know what? I'm going to fly back this afternoon. I have to work. But 99% of the time when I get on the plane, that's Richard time. And I shut it off and I get in a book and what used to be long flights are over in a minute and... Or even just think or anything, but that's, that's where I actually lose track of time. How many days a year do you fly? I am, I sleep in a hotel more than 300 nights a year. Wow. Yeah. I'll, I'll do 170, 180,000 miles this year. What book are you currently reading? Um, what it's the, I'm L please don't be mad when I slightly oh, get the title wrong. Uh, should and must the intersection. Absolutely. Should and must. I have it right over there in the corner. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. L Luna. Check it out L guys. Luna. I actually, I actually bought 2000 plus copies of that to mail out with this quarterly, quarterly mailing that I sent out to people. That's amazing. Yeah. It's a really, really excellent book. What book Well, so speaking of gifting, what book do you gift? Have you gifted most often to other people? Uh, for sure, it's my favorite book ever. It's called A Fan's Notes. A by, Fan's Notes. A Fan's Notes by Fred Exley. What is that? Um, I don't know, we're probably fifty years on since it was written, and um, Fred's amazing. It's super smart. It's for for me, there's this is like first, second, and third place in terms of best book. Oh wow! It's that okay, special. this is a strong endorsement. And it's a brilliant guy who keeps messing up his life over and over again. Is this autobiographical? Or? Uh, he, says it's a fiction. That he says that certain events may resemble his own life, but okay, of course but it's, it's considered a novel. Yes, it is. Got it. Yes, okay. it is. Yeah. And it's, um, it's painful and I'm, I'm not, I don't see sad movies. I don't read overtly sad things. Um, but this is, it's neither of those things, but man, it's such a lesson. It's, it's really, really what special. Did you, what, what are, and it's what, funny and it's literary and it's, it's nuts. What is one of the, what do you get from it when you, when you read it? So I take it you've read it more than once. I'm probably on, it's, it's actually, I'm about a third through again. It's next to, next to my bed and I'm probably on my 12th or 13th reading. What do you get from it? Resolve. 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 Oh, that's good. Yeah. It's huge. That's, I, that's I, everything. I, I mean, I'd be a liar if I didn't say I'm not totally motivated by many factors, including, uh, fear of failure. It's, I, I would like to say that that's not true, but yeah. I'm supremely motivated by it. What is failure in your mind? And not it could it. be something very specific. I mean, like whether it's related to business or whatever, but like in your mind right now, what is the fear? What is the failure that you're afraid of? Not achieving the things I want to achieve. Like what? Not, uh, well, continuing to work for myself, yeah. which is great. That's huge. I mean, time is everything. I mean, there's, there's nothing in my mind besides time and having your opportunity to decide how to spend it. Yeah. That's so, because it's going to be over. I don't not, believe what you want to believe. I believe that we get one swing and that's it. I yeah. want to make it great and not having the occasion to decide what I do, not having the occasion to express myself in whatever way I feel like that's failure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a horrifying thought. Like I get physically ill thinking about it. If you, I think you're a spectacularly good teacher, uh, if you were teaching a ninth grade class, mm-hmm. you could teach anything you wanted. Yep. 
What would the class be? Love yourself. Love yourself. Yeah. Yeah, you got to love yourself before you love others. And without it, you nothing productive is going to happen. I mean, we can all bang our heads on the wall, but unless you like really come from a place of like, this is who I am. This is what I, I have, which is like a mind trapped in a physical being, which trapped you know, in a, in a meat cube. Yeah. Trapped in a meat cube. Like you have to like acknowledge that and then make the most of it. I mean, really appreciate yourself. And especially ninth grade. That's like, I mean, my daughter actually just entered 10th grade, but that's like such a tough time on kids. I remember yeah. I, how, what a tough time I had and you, it's very easy to lose your bearings. Like, easy. are they doing it right? Are they doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Yeah. Like all that's just like, you know, be, love yourself. I always thought I was going to be a ninth, like a teacher and specifically want to teach ninth grade because yeah. that's, that's the, uh, so the fork in so many paths. Yep. You know what I mean? Totally. But what, so how would you help someone cultivate loving themselves? So I'll be honest. I have trouble with that. Yeah. I beat the shit out of myself Dude. all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, Helping someone cultivate that, I think, well, it's probably... I'm starting to feel this Takitsuru. Yeah, it's good. (laughs) I would say it probably comes with context again, you know? I mean, we're always like, grass is always greener. Well, why don't you taste that grass, right? Mm. And see what it is and see what it actually feels like. Try it on. Taste it. Put your toes in it. And if if there's a way to again, give people context of other things, we've done it with our daughter by with travel. Um, you know, we just got back from the Galapagos Islands two weeks ago, by far the best place I've ever been. And the Galapagos themselves are really amazing. And then you spend some time in Guayaquil and that's a real story of have and have nots. And it's an amazing thing, but you know, just as one example of, you know, what is it like to, to live these other lives and everybody struggles, but the happiest people are, you know, that's the real wealth is, is being happy. And if you can show people, you know, give examples of people that, that are happy you know, regardless of their material circumstances, I think that's, that's a way to share with kids that it's worth loving yourself and making the most of it. Now, when you look at, uh, your financially successful friends, both, yep. both of us know a lot of people who have achieved extraordinary levels of financial success. Yep. And we'll, we'll exclude Chris from this conversation because I don't want anyone to think that we're referring to him. I think Chris is a, uh, a case study. I'm very fascinated by him because he's, okay. he's crafted an incredible life for himself. Absolutely. Uh, but for of those financially successful people who are unhappy, yep. Generally unhappy. Yep. What do you think they have in common? Or what do they, what do they, why are they unhappy? Misplaced goals. Misplaced goals. Yeah. And, you know, chasing, chasing the financial reward purely for the financial reward is not the right way to do it in, yeah. in my esteem. You know, that first chef that gave me that first wine job, he was great. We were, we were overlooked for a couple things in the press and I'm, you know, I'm new in this, this world, food and wine world. And he's like, look, Richard, you know, if you work for the awards, you know, you don't, you don't do good work, but if you do good work, the awards will come and they might not even be the specific press things. But I think that the people that do have that, fantastic wealth and are unhappy. Um, you know, they, maybe they worked for the wrong thing. Maybe, um, you know, barring things like traumatic loss of a loved one or something like that, you know, all that aside, maybe they don't love themselves. Maybe they don't know how to share. Sharing is a big deal. Like, you know, or maybe you just, maybe you just believe in the wrong thing, you know, asking for help is a big deal too. Yeah, it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. There's a, there's a book by Amanda Palmer, um, who's also been on the podcast partially because I read her book, uh, the art of asking, uh, yeah. incredible musician, but just 
fucking ask for help already. Yeah. You know, ask like, for what you want. I, I, because I grew up as such a bookworm, I constantly try to revert to like pro and con lists and writing and research to solve problems. And like nine times out of ten, especially after I read that book, I was like, Jesus Christ, Ferris! Like you could have just called this friend for that, yep. this friend for that, and they would have yeah. been happy to help you. Totally. You know? Another thing I think is a little bit out of left field, but I think that some of those people, people forget that meat box you said were contained and you got to take care of that thing. Yeah. And you see so many people that are unhappy because they don't, Yeah, you know, and, and I, I live in this weird place. Like I make people happy by sharing booze, knowledge and accessibility with them too much. There is such a thing as too much of a good thing. And that, yeah. you know, and so you see a lot of that too. Now you, I mean, you are, you know, a, a trafficker of, of goodness, but also vices for a lot of people. Hundred percent, right? I and, struggle with that actually. Well, no, 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 and I'm not saying that in a, an accusatory fashion because I've got a, I mean, I have an entire closet full of booze behind us. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, my question for you, I mean, you're in very good shape. You travel 300 days of the year or more. Yep. What are some of the keys? Like, what do you choose your hotels wisely? As in, make sure that the gym is real. In fact, the best hotels don't have a gym at all, but they have a relationship with a real gym, you know, across the street or down the block or something that, that actually probably guides my hotel choice 10 to one to any other factor. How do you determine that? Well, you know, that's a big thing. Part of it's experience, right? So like, I love to stay at the standard East village in Manhattan, not the High Line, but the East village because they don't have a gym, but they have a relationship with the New York health club right across the street. Right. So you just kind of like you dig around, you can find that stuff. But, um, I mean, physical fitness is, it's paramount to me. I know that I think better when I'm healthy. Oh yeah. I'm a nicer guy when I've exercised, you know, and, and actually, I actually, I really try to peak. So if I'm at home, I have the most amazing trainer, Aaron Carson in Boulder. She's awesome. And we've figured out the schedule. So let's do a real, um, you know, build over seven or if I'm at home for even 10 days, which is rare, even four days, like let's make it hard, 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 hard. And then I need a rest day when I have to get uh, on the plane. To travel. That's exactly. Smart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you really try to fit him in there. What, uh, what is your week? Let's just say you're traveling for a month at a time. Yep. What is your week of exercise look like? Minimum seven or pardon me, five out of seven days. Minimum okay. five. And you know, sometimes that might when be work out. Try to do mornings. Mornings. What time? As you know what? I have to caffeinate. I, yeah. I would be a liar if I didn't say I'm, uh, I'm fully addicted to caffeine. Prefer yeah. it from tea to coffee, but I'll take it however I can get it. What um, type of tea? Uh, we drink a lot of oolong, a lot of pu'er. Um, those are the, the two that matter a lot. I have a friend. He, I would, I would have considered myself like a coffee geek extraordinaire. Um, everything dialed in the scales and the, you know, the temperature, everything just like perfect. Um, and then I met this guy, Sebastian, who taught me all about tea and I had tried so hard. Like, you know, I read, read something like, oh man, I should really know about tea. Like it appeals to my wine minder. Sure. And I could never do it. And then I met Sebastian and he just ruined me and it's, uh, ruined you in a good way. Oh, in a good way. So it's all about in pursuit of tea now. It's cool. Yeah. It's the best. Yeah. So caffeine and then try to exercise right away. And certainly before you get into the email or your phone or any of that stuff. What time do you wake up when you're on the road or do you try to wake up? I try to get a minimum of eight hours. So the time is a moving target, especially when, you know, I've been in five time zones in the last seven right. days. And when you so have to socialize at night with... It's huge. Now, when you is the travel to talk to retailers and distributors? Is that primarily, like, what accounts for the bulk of the travel? Um, you know, it's, I can't, it, it's a lot of two things. 
making and selling, right? So the making part, um, is easy. It's easy to, I mean, for me, you dream something up and you go and you create it, you know, yeah. and it's a physical thing and you have something it's done. Um, but that takes work. I mean, I make things, um, on three continents today, which continents, uh, Australia, um, wine. Yeah. We, so we make wine in Australia. What's it called? It's, uh, called Suset, which is S U C E T T E. First one comes out next month, actually. Oh, it's yeah. exciting. So let's, let's put a date on that because people will listen to this for months. Okay. So, so that's, that's going to be October of 2015. 2015. Yeah. Cool. And, uh, Suset means to suckle in old French. So it's, it's uh, yeah, that's a cool one. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you let your mind run wild with that. Yeah, um, I was going to say it. Yeah. But, yeah. So, uh, the, the white wine will be called Nichon and I'll let you look that up. Um, <laughs> have you smell it? I'll let everybody look N-I-C-H-O-N. it up. I C H O N. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you, you guys can put that together. Yeah. Um, we make some rosé under my essential, uh, brand in the South of France. And of course we make sombra mezcal in Oaxaca. Um, sombra we, meaning shadow. Sombra meaning shadow. How did you choose that name? Uh, two ways. First of all, I mean, I think mezcal is a little, even still a little forbidden, a little dangerous. And I believe everybody has a dark side. I'm yeah. certain of it. I know I do. Yeah. Um, and the second is maybe a little bit more, um, historically referential of mezcal very much in the shadow of tequila. Uh, yeah, I like that. Yeah. So I have a friend who's done a lot of work with, uh, shall we say plant medicine, psychedelics. And awesome. And oddly enough, Waka. he, that's true, yeah. right? The little people yeah. and uh, mushrooms, sacred mushrooms have been used for uh, millennia in Mexico, of course. Uh, and he did not spend time in Mexico, but for whatever reason, he drank all sorts of different alcoholic beverages before this work. Mm-hmm. And now, for whatever reason, he can only drink mezcal. <laughs> yeah. No, I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why, but that's, it's the only beverage that he can consume. Uh, and he does it very irregularly, but when it comes to alcohol, mezcal is all he can consume. That's amazing. Out of nowhere. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. Really, really weird, right? It's good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently so. Uh, and, uh, well, the other half of that travel question, why so much is yeah. the selling piece. So oh, if, right. So if you, the listener want to buy a bottle of Sombra, the first thing I had to do was import it to America. Then you have to sell it thanks to, um, you know, the repeal of prohibition and all the laws that follow that. I have to sell it to a distributor. So then we have to sell it to a retailer and then the retailer has to sell it to you. So there are all these things. So I can't just assume that you'd make the first sale and then it ends up on your shelf. So where can people find Sombra? Like for those people listening? Thankfully, everywhere. 10 years later, all across America. Everywhere. Everywhere. So like if I went to, I'm just making one up here. What is it? K&L here? Am I making it? Absolutely. K&L wine. Uh, It's not wine, but K&L. I don't know if K&L has it, but we're certainly all over San Francisco. Yeah, Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, you guys can search for it. So, yeah. uh, what is the $100 or less purchase that comes to mind that has had the biggest impact on your life? That's interesting. Um, I'm not a material guy, and having that said, I like nice It could stuff. be something free. Something what? It could be something free. It could be something free. Can it be a donation? Can it be a donation? Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, we try to support small things in many ways all the time. So my daughter and I just, um, 
gave to Donors Choose. And, oh, and, yeah. yeah. Which is amazing. Donors right? Choose is amazing. I'm on their advisory board. Oh, that's so cool. I've been doing stuff with Donors Choose for like seven years. Yeah. yeah. And so to have the occasion to like sit with her and figure out like, hey, we want to give it to this class near our community. Here's why. I mean, it's enriching because you get to enrich that experience and donors yeah. choose, but it's enriching for my daughter and I to have that discussion and it facilitates yeah. so much more, yeah. you know, and father daughter time and like her education. And that's, that's meaningful. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, my parents used to help me. I want to say it was UNICEF, but I could be getting that completely wrong. I think I am, but determining what to donate to someone in a third world country, whether it be like a number of chickens or a goat or a this or a that. And the, the, the conversation, uh, and walking your kid through helping them walk themselves through the Mm -hmm. decision is, uh, fascinating. I think very valuable. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite movie or documentary? Yeah, yeah, several. Um, you know, it's funny. Also, on the topic of the kid, uh, we watched The Breakfast Club last night. Oh, wow. <laughs> first time. Blast in. from the past. Yeah. So she's just started high, uh, sophomore year in high school, new school. And I was like, oh, this is, I remember this being so formative 30 years ago for me. And uh, we watched it and just, you know, shooting tears and laughter and the whole thing. And, but, <laughs> but there are so many great movies like that. I wouldn't say that's my favorite, but for sure that, you know, that's the most recent in my mind. Um, I love the movie Baraka, which is actually that's a good one. Yeah. Very visual. Yeah. And it really reminds me of, of a lot of things. I mean, one. B-A-R-A-K-A. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And Baraka for me is meaningful because it talks about, um, I mean, how amazing our planet is, how fragile our planet is. It reminds me of, um, the geologic timescale. This is like a profoundly important thing to me at the geologic timescale. When you look at how long it's taken everything and how, I mean, what's San Francisco going to look like in several hundred years? Well, we're all going to be long gone. In fact, humanity might be gone. Who knows? Who knows what will happen? But that we're just this tiny little blip in, in time. Like we, we matter not at all. Yeah. And so it just reminds me to party. <laughs> like have a great time. You're, you're barely here. Get after it and crush your life. It's awesome. Don't take everything so seriously. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That's, that's it. Um, with your workouts, if you could only choose three exercises or types of exercise for your workouts, what would you choose? Burpees. Burpees. Yep. Um, squats. And intervals. What type? Short intervals, 40 seconds on, 20 seconds off, 40 seconds running? on, running. Got yeah. it. Yeah, that's a good combo. You're ready for the military. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, Tim, I used to run a lot. Um, the longest I ever ran at once was 82 and a half miles. That's fucking long. Yeah. Well, the race was a hundred. So that was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> 82 and a half miles is yeah. no joke. Yeah. Wow. And, it, and so can you just like fuck off at any given moment and just like run 20 miles? Um, I think I could probably get 20 miles done. I don't know if I could run them. And that, and I quit. So after that summer, you know, after I, the 82 and a half. Yeah. I, you know, I started running in the year 2000 when I moved to Colorado and it was great. I loved it. And then I started competing and then, you know, as a citizen did pretty well, um, by no means professional, but, uh, I really liked it and it was, it was a way to clear my head. 
Um, and they say about runners, you're either running from something or to something. And yeah. there's for sure an element of that to my running also. Which one was, which one was it for you? Uh, for both. <laughs> I can <laughs> name both pieces. Um, so, but I found, okay, let's go farther. Let's go farther. And then it, it was, um, you know, all trail marathons and then, ha- you know, 50 mile races. And, there, and that was great. And then you cross that threshold and, and it becomes really catabolic. Yeah. And I was almost 30 pounds lighter than I am now. Wow. And you're not a huge guy. I mean, you're not thin, but you're not like a huge, totally. You don't have 30 pounds to spare. No. And then, but you know, it's about, you know, strength to weight ratio and how quickly you're going to get over that mountain and then over the next mountain, then over the next mountain. And I wanted to get stronger and as things start to break, but as you, you you would like get strong in the gym and then you go start running again and your body just eats itself and then it all goes away and you're like, ah, wow. And then with that comes so much inflammation and, I'm a big believer, at least for me, it's just not, you know, I actually believe for people, it's not good to run that long a distance. Yeah. But so it, it, feel free not to answer, but what were you running from and running to? Oh, you know what? I am, um, I think probably not that dissimilar to you. I'm also very hard on myself. And, you know, when I do something, I want to do it very, very well. And I think everything was, really working very, very well for me, except for my marriage. And that uh, wasn't working well at all. In fact, that was, it was brutal. Um, and I was running to a place of candor yep. where, you know, again, part of being hard on yourself is being honest with yourself. And I, I treasure candor and the occasion to, to, to just live in it. Right. So, um, running to that place where I was honest about all of it, and you know where I was wasn't that place, but yeah, I'm not. I'm not particularly good at intimate relationships. Yeah, I, I don't think I'm the worst. Uh-huh. I'm not abusive. I'm not you know a total bastard. But yeah. I, uh, I shut off a mm. lot in intimate relationships. Yep, it's like I don't like the uncontrollable, unpredictable nature of a lot of it. I feel you completely. Do you know what I mean? Like, 100%. Because you're the guy who's yeah. ha- you're the guy who has like the seven foot stack of notes on wine. Yeah, exactly. And then you win the game, right? Yeah. I mean, so to speak. Yeah, we're used and, to and making. And it's like better. we're we're sitting for the, those people who aren't here, which is everyone. Uh, we're right next to a bookshelf, and I have an entire shelf of notebooks. Yeah, right. And it's like that's how I can predict the trajectory of exactly. fill in the blank. Yep. But with a relationship. Oh wait, there's another person with their own ideas and feelings and concepts and preconceptions just like me. Yep. Free radical. My dog just stretched and kicked the great door open. It's amazing. And, but is not moving. That's hilarious. She's still beautifully asleep. <laughs> still completely asleep. Yeah. Um, if you could give your, th- let's see. When you were 25, where were you? Uh, when I was 25, I had just finished my graduate thesis and was about to take that first cooking job in Montana. What advice would you have given yourself at 25? Don't be so fucking shy. Don't be so fucking shy. Yeah. That's why you were shy. Oh dude. I, I even really until recently, I can still think of instances like within the last 24 months where like, man, Richard, I wish you had been more forward. I wish you'd, you know, talked about, it. I wish you'd asked for X instead of being so subtle and implying it. And I try to go for that subtle, elegant thing. Which sounds really nice. I think part of that's actually being shy. Yeah. And I am, you know, ferociously competitive with myself, but sometimes the, the clues that you put outwardly are 
too subtle mm-hmm. to be heard or someone's just talking louder than you. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, that's actually more and more the case, I think. So, um, I would have told myself to have been much more forward. And what about at 30? So let's, let's put a time mark on that. Where were you at 30? So at 30, um, my daughter had been born four months prior. I had the best wine job in the world. Um, I was getting fit, living in Aspen, learning a ton. Um, very, very focused on this master sommelier exam. Um, and that, what would I do there? I would probably party a little less, which I, you know, I keep coming back to this thing of balance. And so, you know, you're an Aspen and you party like a rock star. Yeah. Aspen's and, party town. Yeah, wow. What that means for me is I also want to be competitive on all these other levels. So you have to balance it with exercising like an Olympian. And I did that. And so everything was very, very full. It was great. You know, the exercise was crazy. The party was crazy. The sleep wasn't much. Family time was interesting and, and wonderful on so many levels um, and not on others. And then you're working and you're studying for this exam, right? And so if um, I don't believe in regret, I, I do not believe in regret. And so I don't want this to come across as that. But if I had that piece to redo, I would dial back some of the party not all of it. I still love, I still party. I love it. But, um, but I would take some of that back and then reallocate that time elsewhere. Where would you allocate it? I probably would have started my first business sooner than later. Hmm. It wasn't that far afterwards. Yeah. You know, I, I passed the master psalm exam and started my first wine company, you know, the next day. What did your first company do? Um, so it was called Betts and Scholl. I founded it with uh, an amazing guy, Dennis Scholl. Uh, he's, he's really, really a special. S-C-H-O-L-L. S-C-H-O-L-L. And Dennis, um, I mean, Dennis is amazing for a lot of reasons uh, that you guys can look up and you should. He's, he's, really, he's really very, very, very driven also. Um, we started making wine in Australia. Then we added France. Then we added Napa Valley. Then we co-founded another company called Scarpetta, making wine in Italy. Um, and in 2009, we sold all of it, um, Scarpetta to an investor group and Betts and Scholl to a small public company. That was a great day. Um, but yeah, you know, it comes back to that time function. I'm always thinking about, you know, I don't want to beat myself up over something where I see an inefficiency in my past, but I, you know, if you have it to do over, I would try to get rid of those inefficiencies. Hmm. What do you think are things that many people do automatically or well, I'll leave it at that. What, what are things that a lot of people do automatically or assume they have to do that they should question? Go to college. Holy shit. Like <laughs> <laughs> I went to, to uh, college and I learned, I mean, I went to Occidental. I made the Dean's list and uh, not the good Dean's list. I made Dean Canower's blacklist. <laughs> <laughs> What, is so, what did you do to earn a place on the blacklist? Oh, a bunch of D's and F's, and I partied. I was just, I mean, it was in L.A. I was a long ways from the beach, but, you know, like, take a kid from the desert and stick him in the city, and he loves the ocean. I grew up on, you know, also in the ocean almost every weekend in Mexico with my family. Um, so I spent, you know, five days a week riding waves and not in class. Hmm. Um, so that was, that was fantastic. <laughs> I wouldn't take that back. Um, I learned a ton. And I learned it about myself. It wasn't so much like, you know, I don't know a whole lot about Macbeth and I don't care and I don't feel bad about it, but I learned a lot about Richard Betts and that was really, really meaningful. 
I don't think I need to go to, you know, a liberal arts school and spend as much money as I did, which was all loan, you know, so on and so forth. You pay that back and deal with it. But I don't think that that was necessarily the only path to achieve that whatever level of self-awareness was achieved by spending that time there. If you hadn't gone to college, how do you think your trajectory would have been different? I think, you know, I, I look on the bright side. I'm hopeful that it would be those, um, be more abbreviated. So those inefficiencies in time, I think that some of those would have gone away. Uh, you know, probably would have been useful to go volunteer somewhere and just work, um, you know, for, for good cause yeah. and come back and you develop that self-awareness. You'd be thankful for so much. Um, and you would have avoided some of those distractions. Although I don't know, Tim, like, I don't know if, if the need to like hit the wall is genetic or not. Like I definitely had a need to hit the wall, you yeah. know, hit it hard. Um, hit the wall in what sense? Um, yeah, just find the guardrails, be it with substances, with grades, with right. significant others, yeah. with just to push you know, it until it breaks with physical things or you could have died, you know, yeah. like, yeah. Um, so those finding the, finding those guardrails is important. However you find them. What, uh, being at a fancy school facilitated a whole lot more fucking off. Yeah. It was, which it. sounds sort of counterintuitive and strange, but you're in this isolated bubble. Yeah. You're sure. not facing the real world. Yeah. 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 Until you get out and you face your loans, but you're really not facing the real world. So I, I don't think that was super productive. What would you put on a billboard if you could have a billboard anywhere? Oh, it advertised my ninth grade class. Love yourself. Yeah. There's a book that uh, helped me quite a bit with that. Uh, called Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It. It's got a very scary cover. And he does. <laughs> uh, yeah, of this guy with a gun against his head with like a heart. Uh, it's yeah. it's uh, by Kamal Ravikant, um, who is the brother. He has the best hair in the world also. You should look up Google Images. Kamal Ravikant, has, I wish I had his hair. Uh, but his brother was also interviewed on this podcast, Naval. Um, any other... Well, first of all, I want to segue to uh, obviously the book that is right here in front of me the essential scratch and sniff guide to becoming a whiskey know-it-all whiskey with an e w-h-i-s-k-e-y given its country of publishing in this case yeah exactly and the the what what are people going to find in this book you know your booze before you choose exactly (laughs) you're going to find democracy is essentially it i think i think the role of the critic has never been less important I I really believe that, you know, it's one thing to curate something, but it's another thing to prescribe something. And I'm really interested in helping people enjoy their lives. We don't do it with stuffed shirts, no ascots, no talking down to people, no fancy language. None of that, none of that matters. Um, and it's certainly not uh, inclusive. All those things do is serve to intimidate and make it exclusive. So much like the wine book, um, my co-creators, uh, Crystal English Saka and Wendy McNaughton and I have tried to, um, apply a methodology to knock whiskey off the pedestal and say, look, this is it. It's not that hard. This is what goes in it. This is what makes it taste the way it does. And then decide which pieces you like and put those back together to find the drink that's going to make you smile. And that's, that's the key. You have some beauty. I mean, the format is beautiful. I mean, the layout. Thank you. You guys are a hell of a team. I mean, Crystal obviously is amazing. Uh, Wendy, just an incredible 
artist. And uh, for instance, there's there's a, a two page spread here. It's uh it's Richard naked laid out on a bear rug. No, I'm kidding. It's, it's the language of the label uh, in the United States and everywhere else. And it's this bottle split in half, and it allows you. It help. It shows you in in a very graphic way or a very visual way how to make sense of labels. And then you have I haven't explored this yet, but I'm excited to the map to your whiskey desires. Exactly. So can you explain this? this yeah. So once you've worked... It looks worked, like an astrological chart, but it's not. Exactly. Essentially, the book is... It's 20 pages, 10 spreads, um, hard cardboard hard cardboard pages. So it's you know, that kid's book feel, except yeah. for adults, obviously. And when you scratch and sniff your way through it, you understand, okay, this is what the different grains smell like. Next, this is what the different wood components smell like. Finally, this is what place smells like. This is what the place where the whiskey is made and how it's aged imparts to the different whiskeys. So you've scratched and sniffed your way through this thing, and now you put them back together. So you start in the middle, and the first question is, you know, what do you do? You want it spicy? Okay, well, I'm guessing you probably don't because you didn't go for this rye, right? Yeah, but you do like the malty thing, right? Yeah. So, so malty you would milkshake size. So then I end up heading outward. This looks like a. Um, a series of concentric circles. It's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure map yep. to finding your ideal group totally. of whiskey. Exactly. And as you travel from question to question, from inside to outside, then you end up with your your selection of whiskey to start with. And what's really cool, I didn't notice until right now, is and they, they traverse a spectrum from mix-slash-rocks to sip to sip slow. Exactly. So like this last guy that we had would be in the sip slow category. Sip slow, exactly. So cool. Yeah. So, so cool. Well, dude, this is, this is fantastic. I, Thank um, you. Everybody should check this out. I, I uh, have given away the scratch and sniff guide that Richard and his, uh, his co-creators put together for wine many, many times. And uh, I'm very excited about this because I, as insecure as I was around wine, I could bullshit my way through it, but I could never bullshit my way through whiskey. And this actually gives you more than bullshit. It gives you a very solid fundamental understanding, not only for yourself, but that you can explain to other people. So you should definitely check that out. Richard Betts, B-E-T-T-S. Where can people find you on the interwebs and so on? At Yo Betts. Yo Betts. Yeah, Yo Betts. Y-O-B-E-T-T-S. <laughs> and that, that's true for everything. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, so on and so forth. Okay. Gmail. So people can right. people can holler at you and say hello on Twitter. Yep. At Yo Betts. Y-O-B-E-T-T-S. If there's any, is there any ask, recommendation, suggestion that you have for the people listening that is not related to the book? I love that. Um, well, first of all, I'm psyched you're listening. That's That's a really big deal. My, you know, I mean, I, I can only speak from personal experience and that's, uh, to be candid. That's been the biggest touch point. Is that, uh, see, I'm still struggling with it. It's the biggest thing that I've, I've really worked on over the last decade. I mean, my whole life. Being candid meaning being direct. And, or, and with, be it, you know, with each other, with yourself. That's really where it starts. You know, sure. Love yourself to love others, but be candid with yourself and you can be candid with others. But like, you know, I don't want, obviously we're all getting older. I live in a, in a business of excess and I want to get old 
gracefully. So I can't lie to myself and say, oh, you're in good shape or, oh, you did the pushups yesterday or whatever. You know, like be honest with yourself. Like, look, dude, get up and do them, you know, or it, it matters. You have to. Yeah. Um, or, hey, look, you know, maybe you're not being as good a partner as you can be to your partners. Like, you know, wake up and think about how to be a great partner, um, which generally means, you know, what's the mission of the partnership um, and and do that or any, you know, there are a million examples in all of our lives if we look around like, and it's a matter of like, what can we do better? Mm-hmm. That's it. What can you do better? Be candid. Yeah. With yourself and others. Yep. I love it. Richard, this is fantastic. Thank you, I am Tim. feeling this delicious set of uh, adult beverages that you've laid before me. Right on. I've, I've been, I've been sipping two of them. And then we had the Taketsuru and then this was the, the Edradour. Edradour 10 year. Delicious. So everybody, check it out. Also visit Yobets everywhere on the interwebs and you can find the show notes, as always, links to everything that we talked about at fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out. Click on podcast or just fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. You can also find every other episode and all the show links and show notes associated with those. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Till next time. Bye. Bye.